0: psychology we need more understanding of human nature because the only real danger that exists is man himself he is the great danger and we are pitifully unaware of it
1: so speaker to the premier where will these camps be built how many people will be detained, and for what reasons? Questions. For what reasons can people be kept in these isolation camps? And I'd like to—I'd like to have the premier assure the people of Unt-
2: Member, take a seat. That unfortunately there is a tremendous amount of noise and. Um, and, and harmful misinformation about on the internet. I was uh, chatting with a group of students the other day, and uh, a young woman uh, asked me about COVID internment camps. And I had to uh, explain uh, that as we consume increasing amounts and in various sources of information online and around us, we need to continue to be attentive to source, we need to be, continue to be attentive uh, to uh, comparing uh, various reports and uh, looking for trusted sources like Dr. Tam, like regional public health authorities, uh, to tell the truth. We will be introducing mandatory PCR testing at the airport for people returning to Canada. Travelers will then have to wait for up to three days at an approved hotel for their test results at their own expense, which is expected to be more than $2,000. Those with negative test results will then be able to quarantine at home under significantly increased surveillance and enforcement. Those with positive tests will be immediately required to quarantine in designated government facilities to make sure they're not carrying variants of potential concern.
0: appeared before the Congressional Committee to tell what I knew of activities which might lead to an attempt to set up a fascist dictatorship. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist.
3: The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are as a people,
0: inherently and historically, opposed to secret societies,
3: to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings.
0: President Bush
1: signed a formal agreement that will end the United States as we know it, and he took the step without approval from either the U.S. Congress or the people of the United States.
4: The
5: secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret.
4: It's known as the Bilderberg Group. Could their objective be world domination?
5: I'm Jim Tucker. I've chased Bilderberg for 30 years. I'll never give up the chase. Bilderberg plan for the whole world is nothing less than world government.
4: I'm not comfortable with that at all. Who elected these guys to run the planet?
5: They are the elitist. They feel they should run the world for their own selfish interests.
6: Now we can see a new world coming into view, a world in which there is the very real prospect of a new world order.
5: Bilderberg is making great progress toward a world government, and only an educated, informed public can stop them in their tracks.
4: David Rockefeller admits in his own memoirs that he wants to destroy the United States. He's a traitor!
0: It's good to be back at the Council on Foreign Relations. As uh, Pete mentioned, I've been a member for a long time and was actually a director for some period of time. I never mentioned that when I was campaigning for re-election back home in Wyoming.
5: Let us never tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories.
3: I need you to move off the property, please. Some shots were fired. There's
2: Bill diverters right there. The Trans-Texas Corridor is a vital part because we
1: stop here in Texas, we stop new world order right here in texas
4: this thing started here and to save this country we kill this damn thing here yeah.
6: Chance for the President of the United States to carry out
1: theories his father used, and that is a New World Order.
4: Your New World Order will fall. Humanity will defeat you. The answer to 1984 is 1776. In the near future, Earth is dominated by a powerful world government. Once free nations are slaves to the will of a tiny elite. The dawn of a new dark age is upon mankind. Countries are a thing of the past. Every form of independence is under attack, with the family and even the individual itself nearing extinction. Close to 80% of the Earth's population has been eliminated. The remnants of a once free humanity are forced to live within highly controlled, compact, prison-like cities. Travel is highly restricted. Superhighways connect the megacities and keep the population from entering into unauthorized zones. No human activity is private. AI supercomputers chronicle and categorize every action. A prison planet dominated by a ruthless gang of control freaks, whose power can never be challenged. This is the vision of the global elite, their goal. A program of total dehumanization, where the science of tyranny is law. A worldwide control grid, designed to ensure the overlords' monopoly of power forever. Our species will be condemned to this nightmare future unless the masses are awakened to the New World Order Master Plan and mobilized to defeat it. Erected by a secretive group, the Georgia Guidestones are a testament to the elite's plan for a world religion, global laws, with a global court and army to enforce it and set in stone it is written that the population never rise above 500 million in this film you will learn how our world is truly governed you will see how highly secretive roundtable groups interlock to form a global intelligence network this group has been steering planetary affairs for hundreds of years Now in the final stage, they prepare for open world government. A goal tyrants throughout history have lusted after. Dr. Michael Kaufman is a published ecologist specializing in ecosystem research, forest ecology and ecosystem classification. Dr. Kaufman played a key role in blocking the ratification of the Convention on Biological Diversity in the U.S. Senate.
5: The concept of a new world order has been around for centuries. It's been receiving tremendous play over the last half of the 20th century. Uh, George Bush, the first senior president, George Bush used it a lot in his speeches and really implies that he really wants to see a order in which we have a universal or a global type of governance in which every human being on planet Earth is ultimately responsible to policies that are being formulated at the international level.
6: It is a big idea, a new world
5: order.
2: President Bush uh, said that the New World Order was uh, in in tune and that's what they were working for. The UN is part of that government. They're working right now very significantly for a North American Union. That's why there's a lot of people in Washington don't care too much about our borders. They have a philosophic belief that national sovereignty is not important. It's also the reason I have made very strong suggestion that we need not be in the United Nations for our national security.
5: It's really always the same. You go back throughout all of history, the Roman Empire, the Soviet Union, Hitler during the Nazism was always saying that it's going to create the utopia for the average person, when in fact, history always shows that it does exactly the opposite.
4: Conquest and empire is as old as civilization. Down-
7: All right, welcome to the bio psy War from the tylerblower.com live stream today we're doing strategic psychological operations we're going to be doing evaluation on some of the various different operations going on as i do see this as a psyop uh being carried out and uh you know when i say this we're going to go more into that we've been doing a series called the bio psy war um there's now three episodes the bio psy war uh let's pull this up here so you can see series as thus far. And, uh, one of the updates on the site that I've made to just to get this a little bit more accessible to to the people that are looking for the actual series itself. So if you go on to TylerBloyer.com and you can scroll down and have the latest posts are here. And then a little bit further down, you'll see this new title card for the bio war. If you click that, You'll be able to see the latest episode in the series as well as scroll through and see the series thus far um then also there's a few contextual items that uh we should cover there that you could also check out in reference to what we're covering today, which would be grand theft world podcast episode number seven grand theft world podcast episode number eleven here let's see if I can get my looks like my level needs to come up just a little bit there and uh doing it live doing it live and then i would also check out dave emery archives for the last year since uh february about starting out with maybe episode uh one 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 1111 and go from there from the bio psyop apocalypse a lot of the sources and references that i locate uh come out of that archive and, uh, not as a, not as someone who's not trying to credit where I'm finding some of this information, I've listed the more important episodes here that I think should be checked out as well as, um, some other papers, including the important Fort Dietrich lab being shut down after a failed safety inspection. Uh, Peter Dazak's eco health Alliance and, uh, the connections there between the Pentagon and, uh, the pandemic science and, uh, a biosecurities failure article uh talking about the USAMRIID uh biosecurity failure and the shutdown of the uh Fort Detrick lab in Maryland. Uh so let's go over actually this goes into let's just read let's just read the a little bit of this article. For the past 50 years, the nation's leading biodefense laboratory has been the forefront of combining infectious disease threats in the United States, but the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute for Infectious Disease at Fort Detrick in Maryland has been largely missing in action from the fight containing the coronavirus. So far, more than 22,000 people in America have been diagnosed with the virus, so on and so forth. Yes, so this is that the, uh, reference to that article. I was just making sure I was saying the right thing there. And then also the bats gene editing and bioweapons article, uh, recent DARPA experiments raises concern amid coronavirus outbreak that we read in to the stream last week for, uh, the bio war. So, uh, those are the just more or less see also articles, uh, in today's show, you'll be able to find the resources. And anything that I discuss that's not already been covered here will be added to the resource and show notes. I've been trying to get in a method of having the show notes up actually before I go live. And that way, you know, if you're curious, you can go pull up that resource, uh, right while I'm doing the show. Okay. So now, uh, in a line, I, I missed a clip there at the end that I wanted to play, but that's okay. Uh, maybe we can squeeze that in at the end. In fact, let me just drop that down on my cue card here. And then perhaps, yeah, that might be a better place for it anyway. Funny how things like that work out. Now, that was uh, Voldemort, or he who cannot be named Mr. AJ there in the beginning, who produced that film Endgame. And before that, we obviously saw, you know, that insane uh, dude up there in Canada, uh, Trudeau, talking about how, you know, there won't never, there'll never be any kind of government-ran Uh, camps or anything like that or uh, quarantine facilities and then you know january of 2021 there he is talking about how you know if you come up positive after traveling into the country you'll have to then uh, go to a government-sponsored hotel he said not it's not a camp it's a hotel or maybe a group of hotel rooms chained together where only the people that were quarantining go and we'll call it a hotel you know, not, it's not a quarantine situation or, a, uh, it's not a concentration. It's not a camp anyway, you know, it's what he was trying to clarify there. So that, that was helpful. Thank you for clarifying uh, what's going on there. And also we went into the film end game. Now say what you want about Alex Jones. I don't necessarily think that Alex Jones, um, has been, uh, a hundred percent, in integrity throughout his years of reporting and journalism. However, you know, if you take, if your goal is to find out the information, you can weed through certain problematic aspects of someone's work. And then, you know, I don't like go and like re- browse infowars.com every day to find out what's going on. But the end game documentary is something that tied in, I think, to the bio war and needed to kind of go there to build out where we're at in the series, as well as give people reference to go check that out. And there's plenty of things that are discussed about the bio war that are in that documentary that I would definitely go check out. Um, I think that, you know, like I said, you can can throw the baby out with the bathwater or, you know, you could try to objectively take in the information, use critical thinking to take away the things that don't make sense and are contradictions. Uh, Go research all the sources and references and links yourself. And then that voice or that messenger can be removed. You don't necessarily need them uh, to get the information. And so that's why I'm not, you know, playing the whole clip here or something, the whole movie, like I can give the context that I was trying to give to that documentary and we'll be building that out in the bio war, which will be a longer term type of thing uh, that I'll continue to do. As long as I have the guests and the uh, material to cover into the show and until it becomes more of a well-rounded uh, thing that I can hand off to the next series that I want to do uh, I had talked about in late 2020 of doing the creature of control series and that did kind of you know forcefully move out of the way for what's going on currently and the stuff that I wanted to get in to the record for my show and for the series and the stream uh, that's going out into TylerBlair.com. Um we've been since 2015 covering the creature of control uh, the aspect of things that are more or less the the You know, if you look at uh, Gustav Lebon's The Crowd, or it's coming from the side of uh, looking at it, not just from, you know, they're doing these things to us and this stuff is happening to us, but rather the psychological things that go on with the actual individuals that participate in their own enslavement. And uh, then we did a series called Falling into the Movement Traps and how people, you know, fall into logical fallacies, logical traps, they fall into... Uh, movements, which have edicts and things that don't make a lot of sense, they become wrapped up in fervor, Uh, they can get into things called groupthink, and that whole series was called falling into the movement traps, it goes into the nature of your situation as it is, is already voluntary, and that claiming that the contracts in your life, that the situations in your life are involuntary, and that there are things being done to you which are outside of your control, and that you can't, uh, take control of as far as your actions go um is a is a is a problematic stance to have as well as even going into refuting uh and not not necessarily refuting as a whole but critiquing uh anarchism and things like that uh voluntarism the non-aggression principle and things like that so, or, you know and that those those topics we broke down thoroughly through a series of presentations live similar to this how we're, they were done live with slideshow presentations, you can check those out in the com front page. There's the original series we did, Liberty Lifestyle, um, on this cha- on this YouTube channel, com. Before that, it was the Creature of Control. Then you can find the Falling into the Movement Traps series, and now we're on to the Bio War, as well as a lot of walk and talks in between that I've done to kind of fill in, you know, where I'm coming from and to show the progression of where my research has come from now from then till now and if you go back and listen to the very first episode of the creature of control uh, you can see that I've been basically talking about the same thing uh, for the last six years or so and uh, plan to kind of go into more depth because there's so much to uncover obviously um, that I can't talk about at all and with the ongoing events we try to keep up with some of that but uh, we're not necessarily swimming in the latest and greatest ongoing events, uh, things that are going on either. That's not, not necessarily my style or my forte, but I do try to pull from that and weave it into the tapestry of the overall big picture. So just to go into a little bit of context on that opening clip here, um, we have from activist post, let's see if I can, yeah, that's fine. Uh, activist Post go. COVID detainment facilities go from conspiracy theory to official government policy in three months. From Matt the Agorist, the COVID-19 internment camp conspiracy is totally false uh, was this other headline from October 21st of 2020. And, uh, you know, that was uh, an article that came out, you know, saying how ridiculous it is that there would even be people talking about that kind of a thing going on. And then uh, here it says, by Matt the Agorist, I asked the government if people should prepare for internment camps. Ontario Provincial Member of Parliament MPP Randy Hillier asked the Central Canadian government legislature during question period of October 7th, 2020. During his inquiry over the country's police policy to detain citizens, Hillier's microphone was cut, and he was silenced and told to sit down. You saw that in the opening clip that I used. His words would go unnoticed, however, and the internet picked up on its... Oh, sorry. His words would not go unnoticed, however, and the internet picked up on it, and the memes began to flow on how Canada was about to start involuntarily detaining COVID-19 patients in government facilities. It is important to note that Hillier's claims were blown out of proportion online with thin- disinformation flowing freely about children being taken from parents to people uh, to, from to people being held in facilities for the rest of their lives. None of this is true predictably, the quote fact checkers unquote, picked up the obviously false claim and came out in full force referring to Hillier's statements and the memes. That followed as, quote, conspiracy theory, unquote. That is totally false. Yes, many of the claims were totally false. However, government-run quarantine facilities are allowed in Canada under the Quarantine Act passed in 2005 under Prime Minister Paul Martin. In June 2020, the federal government issued its third order requiring every person entering Canada to quarantine for 14 days. The pushback against the online conspiracy theories, quote unquote, where these quarantine sites were, quote, voluntary, unquote, for Canadian citizens. Well, of course, that's the thing about citizenship is that once you've voluntarily become a citizen, you are now obligated through the contractual obligations of that law, system of law, um, not like that there's, uh, not ways to break contracts or ways to get out of contracts, but that's the system of citizenship is that it's voluntary in nature. So that's what they're saying that you, you have, uh, a vol you, it is voluntary to get into citizenship. Okay. But once you're in it, it's similar to, to like the military, like once you're voluntarily in the military, you don't get to then uh, choose what you're going to do and how you're going to proceed. Like, you're going to follow orders at that point. But it, it is, for the most part, especially nowadays, voluntary to get into the military. And I'm just pulling up my digital online Webster's 1828 here and uh, going to the word voluntary. Uh, voluntary, acting by choice or spontaneously, acting without being influenced or impelled by another free or having power to act by choice, not being under restraint as a man is a volunteer voluntary agent proceeding from choice or free will. And if you scroll down, let's see, actually let's go to a volunteer. A volunteer is a person who enters into a military or other service of his own free will. In military affairs, volunteers enter into service voluntarily, but when in service, they are subject to discipline and regulations like other soldiers. They sometimes serve graciously, but often receive a compensation. Entering into a service of free will as volunteer companies. So you're entering into the service, but once you're contractually bound to your military contract, there can be real-world repercussions for not then continuing to act upon your own free will and decide to do what's right and wrong by yourself. Hence the problem of being a police officer or a military man. That you have to end up carrying out acts regardless of what you think is right or wrong, which is almost which is which is the definition of what a bad person is or evil essentially doing what you're told without thinking and this was not an excuse at the so-called you know nuremberg trials which were supposed to rot out all the uh things that went on and horrible uh crimes against humanity that went on in world war Two by the nazis but really you know avoided all the nazi scientists that the united states was bringing in under operation paperclip Anyway, so let's not get caught up there. I just wanted, I thought that was interesting that these are voluntary. Well, let's just keep in mind that according to a volunteer in the Webster's 1828, you know, once you're in that service, you are subject to discipline and regulations like other soldiers. So in, in that example, uh, like, in t- like a military person or other service of his own free will, such as citizenry, Uh, You know, you don't have a choice by that contract to just morally choose what you feel is right or wrong to do. And that's the precedence that they're laying down here in this article. So continuing on, the federal government has an in this activist post article that came out uh, in February of February 4th of 2021 by Matt the Agorist. The federal government has announced funding for voluntary quarantine sites for some of the country's homeless and has made plans to expand self-isolation capacity for returning international travelers without suitable places to go, like Canada... to go. But Canadians will not be compelled to leave their homes for so-called COVID camps. A spokesperson for the health, health ministry, Patty Hajdu, told cbc news in the october in october to dispel the conspiracy theories right but then they've changed a lot of what she was saying back then already in october the prime minister trudeau even responded saying the claims of mandatory covid19 detainments were harmful misinformation unfortunately quoted this is quoting trudeau there is a tremendous amount of noise and harmful misinformation And uh just checking Check here to make sure we're not
8: speaking silence.
7: Trudeau said, I had to explain that we consume increasing amounts of various sources of information online and around us. We need to continue to be attentive to the source. And we need to continue to be attentive to comparing various reports and looking for trusted sources. Something that we just me and." Parenthetically, here, something that we here at tylerbloyer.com try to do on a weekly basis. The answer is no. We are building containment or internment camps. The health minister's. The answer is no. We are not building containment or internment camps. The health minister. The health minister spokesperson said in a statement. That was in October, and over the months, the government has moved the goalpost on how travelers are treated now even travelers with negative tests will be forced to quarantine at their home under government surveillance while this is only for those engaging in international travel as we've seen the goalposts moves we've seen the goalpost moves and here they're quoting dr teresa tam i think oh no here trudeau again Those with negative test results will then be able to quarantine at home under significantly increased surveillance and enforcement, Trudeau said in a press conference last week. In regards to the increased surveillance, this will include home visits from private COVID security personnel. There will be increased security contractors that will do more, I would say, door-knocking to check on people who are in quarantine, said Dr. Theresa Tam, Canada's chief public health officer on Friday. I was just going to see if this links to an actual video because that would be interesting just to hear that being said, it looks like it's an article from CNN travel. All right. So uh, I think you get this sense of this article. Uh, Let's see if we can scroll down a little bit, uh, source, the free thought project. I'm reading this on
8: activist post.
7: Okay. So yeah, basically there you go. They're they're telling you in one breath at a few months before, and that's how this whole thing's been the whole time. That goal co- the goalpost keeps shifting in general with every bit of information uh that's come out. Everything from 14 days to quarantine and just stay home and social distance and everything all go back to normal to two months to six months to January to when the vaccines come and now, Oh, well we, the vaccines aren't working and now there's mutations of coronavirus. To there will not be, it'll be voluntary, you know? And you know, as we've broken down here plenty of times, it is, it's all voluntary. The people, you know, that comply with uh, any government edict is are acting voluntarily, even up, up until the point where they are, let's say, like physically threatening you, uh, maybe even with murder, at that point, it's still voluntary how you choose to respond to that. So uh, we won't, you know, let's just pull up a, at this point in time, I think it would be good to play the clip that I was going to have in the beginning. And so we'll just go to that really quick right now.
5: Everything we're doing is basically voluntary on behalf of people, right? Uh, state government, local government, federal government can't really, doesn't have the power to enforce stay-at-home orders. If 19 million people said, I'm, I'm going out today,
1: uh, they would
5: go out. Everything we're doing...
7: So see, you know, Cuomo knows that it's all voluntary. He, he knows how it works. You got to get up there. You got to look authoritative. You got to speak. Uh, you got to speak from the deep, you know, diaphragm here and just get out there with a little bit of dark shading lighting behind you and some fresh makeup and get that, you know, slick looking thing that he's got going on. Slick gangster style voice and just tell people how it is, huh? This is how it's going to be now. This is how it's going to be, and we're going to do it like this. And we're going to get people in these ventilators, and we're going to hide ventilators, and we're going to put people in nursing homes that don't need to be there, and we'll just walk away after everybody's dead, and it won't matter because I'm the governor, huh? I'm the mayor, huh? Huh? I'm the, I'm not the going to be the president, huh? What you think of this, huh? I don't know. That wasn't the best Cuomo <laughs> impersonation. That was definitely ad hoc on the fly. But that's, uh, you know, again, not to make too much of a joke of it, but the, when they're telling you it's going to be voluntary, just keep in mind that they are looking at that from a legal perspective. That's usually what they're doing when they're calling you a citizen and it's voluntary. They don't look at it like that means you have the free will to do what you want to do. That's not what that means. <laughs> it means you will uh, comply to the contractual agreement that we have here, which is what we tell you to do is what you're going to do. That's what they mean by that. So they're just using language that sounds like it's a lot better. Um, So let's let's see what uh, this article finishes up here. I'm noticing that they leave a little bit to be seen. Immediately required does not mean voluntary it means that citizens will be forced into these facilities calling them mandatory government facilities instead of internment camp is a matter of semantics internment is defined as the state of being confined as a prisoner especially for political or military reasons does that not sound like what Trudeau said in the statement above see the shift in policy happening in the video below Indeed, according to the government's own website, violators will be imprisoned. And they link to this uh, website here, consequences. uh, This is travel.gc.ca. Consequences for failure to comply with the emergency order. Failure to comply with this order is an offense under the Quarantine Act and could lead to imprisonment or fines. So it's voluntary, right? You can voluntarily go to jail if you if you don't want to comply. This is the travel restrictions in Canada. Um, I'm going to go ahead and add this into the show notes. And we'll do it live because I want to make sure that that gets in there for people that would like to see. And this is a good example of how I can just add something into the show notes really quick live piss everybody off in the future who has to listen through this but i want to test out hitting update see now somebody could actually go while watching and hit that article uh hello people in the live chat nice to see you today thanks for joining uh okay just making sure that there's things going correctly with the tech here i can still hear myself talking in the monitor on youtube so that's good Oh, that's a very interesting uh, series of articles there. Let's continue on with the bio sci war for today, if I can find my way back home here. You know, when you're doing it live, it's like there's something about it that I'm still not quite used to that I get a little flustered and I like suddenly can't find like the most basic things on my computer. So I have to work through that. And thank you for allowing the time for these sort of fumbles and stumbles across, uh, you know, the tech here and things going on, at least today I'm going to shoot for not meeting myself for a minute and a half segment ha- has been has been my signature style. Um, and but we, what we hope to today is just continue the narrative of adding to, uh, you know, that the SARS coronavirus, the SARS-CoV-2, uh, which causes COVID-19 in people, the current plague and pandemic that's going on is not only uh something that may have leaked out of a lab or been released out of a lab or uh been that lab could very well be a patsy uh which is sort of more what I lean towards and not necessarily that there was a mistake uh with releasing it but that that was actually intentionally released as part of the biowar uh op that is going on and as a bioweapon um something that was created Uh, back which we'll show here in a minute that there were very similar if not the same type of viruses being created in a lab back in 2008 in the united states uh, by the united states military and that uh the guardian and other articles in 2018 warning about the potential problems with the uh lab gain of function research and bioweapons research uh but also that the uh the false flag nature of it or the pandemic or the uh, s- psychological operation nature of this event is such that some people I still know are completely opposed to thinking that there's anything real going on at all with this. And that's uh, something that I take issue with because I think that there is something going on real and that similar to say how well 9-11 was an inside job or 9 was a false flag terrorist event. Well, that doesn't mean that the towers weren't brought down right i don't want to say how they were brought down but uh it doesn't mean just because it wasn't uh legit what they're telling us or the nist you know um investigation leaves a lot of things to be wondered and questioned um or that there's clear ties between the you know connections between some people such as like uh larry silverstein and you know, just a lucky Larry Silverstein gets $4.9 billion in insurance money after making the purchases of those buildings, and Building 7 just happened to collapse under, which he owned, and uh, nothing, no planes hit that tower, and all these sort of things that can be left for questioning, similar to how, uh, I'm not saying that that doesn't mean it didn't happen, though, like it did happen similar to COVID-19, and so, I'm questioning it in a way that's saying it is real. It is happening. But what we're being told is probably not correct. The media, the news media, has been infiltrated for a long time now, probably going back to JFK assassination and before uh, post-World War II period, and uh, the United States becoming part of the United Nations, as well as uh, the Council on Foreign Relations body infiltrating into the United States past 1921 and getting its uh, tentacles out there into the media. You can now see that people connected in with the Council on Foreign Relations and the United Nations and things like that are well in control of the American news media. So, yes, my premise is that we're not being told the 100% truth. There will be leaks coming out in the media about how something is being created in a lab or there's potentials for this thing being coming from the meat from China or uh, from labs even in China. But that all is detracting from taking away from some of these things that need to be closely investigated, such as the Whitney Webb article that we discussed last week and went into, and we'll touch on today as well. So let's just get into that a little bit. Uh, if we go to the article from the guardian that I was mentioning, which I actually have printed out here at my desk, it's also there on the screen. Uh, but it's one that I wanted to put in my folder. So, I'd ask, well, why would you print that out? If you had it on your, on your screen there, the answer is I'm creating this binder, which has the bio psyop papers that we've been discussing, uh, information operations roadmap, one right turn. And we're there that we read a few episodes back as well as the psychological operations, uh, army, the psychological operations, us army doctrine field manual number 33 that we read. So that way, you know, certain articles like this one that might get scrubbed or changed or moved or links broken. In the future I can have all the documents together and pull them out, the actual paper, physical copies. And uh, this is a shorter document here now. Anyway, but let's just read through this. So this is from uh, The Guardian on uh, let's just looking for the date here. Uh, Tuesday, June 19th, 2018. The rapid rise of synthetic biology, a futuristic field of science that seeks, let's just get that, that seeks to master the machinery of life, has raised the risk of a new generation of bioweapons, according to the major U.S. report into the state of the art. Advances in the area mean that scientists now have the capability to recreate dangerous viruses from scratch, make harmful bacteria more deadly, and modify common microbes so that they churn out lethal toxins once they enter the body. The three scenarios are picked out as a threat of highest concern in a review of the field published on Tuesday by the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, at the request of the Department of Defense report that was commissioned. Okay. The Department of Defense report was commissioned to flag up the ways in which powerful technologies might be abused to focus the minds on how best to prepare Michael Imperial chair of the report committee and professor of microbiology and immunology at the university of michigan said the review used only unclassified information and so has no necessary uh sorry i lost my place i was looking up at the screen there let me just start that over michael Perial, Chair of the Report Committee of the Professor of Microbiology and Immunology at the University of Michigan, said the review used only unclassified information and so has no assessment of which groups, if any, might be pursuing novel biological weapons. We can't say how likely any of these scenarios are, he said, but we can talk about how feasible they are. In a report, the scientists described how synthetic biology which gives researchers precision tools to manipulate living organisms quote enhances and expands unquote which could be uh, you know gain of function <laughs> I could have easily just have said that as well opportunities to create new bioweapons quote as the power of the technology increases that brings a general need to scrutinize where harms could be could come from unquote said peter carr a senior scientist at mit synthetic biology center in cambridge massachusetts more than 20 years ago eckard wimmer the geneticist at stony brook university in new york highlighted the potential dangers of synthetic biology in dramatic style when he recreated a. poliovirus in a test tube earlier this year a team at the University of Alberta built an infectious horsepox virus the virus is close is a close relative to smallpox of smallpox which may have claimed half a billion lives in the 20th century today the genetic code of almost any mammalian virus can be found online and synthesized the technology to do this is now avail- is available now said Imperial It requires some expertise, but it is something that is relatively easy to do, and that's why it tops the list. So, moving to another article here that we have, buttons on my stream deck. Uh, The 2008 report that I was talking about, Um, I may have said that it was, let's, let's just read about this here. So I pulled this up shortly before the show because I felt like it was something that was worth having in there uh, along with what was being said in the Guardian article there that they can basically like 3D print viruses in the lab at home now. Uh, not literally 3D print, but th- you can find a lot of the genetic uh, the genetic code of mammalian vi- uh Let's see, what did it say? It said... Today, the genetic code of almost any mammalian virus can be found online and synthesized. And here we have synthetic recombinant bat SARS-like coronavirus is infectious in cultured cells and in mice. Uh, December 2008, preceding a National Academy of Science, proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, DOI. 10.1073, source PubMed. The abstract and figures defining prospective pathways by which zoonosis evolves and emerges as human pathogens is critical for anticipating and controlling. Centered here. Critical for anticipating and controlling both natural and deliberate pandemics. However, predicting tenable pathways of animal-to-human movements has been hindered by challenges in identifying reservoir species, cultivating zoonotic organisms in culture, and isolating full-length genomes for cloning and genetic studies. The ability to design and recover pathogens reconstituted from synthesized cDNAs has the potential to overcome these obstacles by allowing studies of the replication and pathogenesis without identification of reservoir species cultivating of primary isolates. Here we report the design, synthesis, and recovery of the largest synthetic replicating life form, a 29.7 KB bat severe acute respiratory syndrome, SARS-like coronavirus bat S. cove, and a likely progenitor to the SARS-CoV epidemic. To test the possible route of emergence from the non cultivable bat S cove to humans, SARS cove, we designated a, coron- a consensus bat S cove genome and replaced the bat S cove spike receptor binding domain, RBD, with the SARS cove RBD, bat S RBD. Bat SRBD was infectious in the cell culture and in mice and was in efficiently neutralized by antibodies pacif- specifically for both bat and human cove like spike proteins. Rational design, synthesis, and recovery of hypothetical recombinant viruses can be used to investigate me- mechanisms of trans species movements of zoonosis and has great potential to aid in rapid public health responses. So again, back in 2008 they were synthesizing bat-like coronaviruses and uh experimenting with SARS-CoV-1 in the lab. This article can be found in the show notes as well as the Guardian article that went over synthetic biology raises risks of new bioweapons, a US report warns. Okay? So that is a nice little thread there that we can see that this this kind of studies have been going on for some time now. Sorry, I didn't I'm losing control of my my set here. Um that you can read into now what we're going to do is deep dive a little bit further down the rabbit hole here and go into the pandemic changed cities uh, a municipal spending on voter extremism paper written about uh, germany night from 1918 to 1933 by christian blickel Uh, he is a federal reserve bank of new york staff report uh person who wrote this report and it goes into some interesting things that I've highlighted and brought up about um, you know, the pandemic and the effects of that possibly radicalizing uh the people in Nazi Germany or having effects of radicalizing and adding to them later on becoming a national socialist country, and then the uh leading up to the uh world wars and also or World War Two in this case, and then also uh the outcome of that being, you know, obviously, well, we'll go, we'll go into the article here. So let's pull this up. And this was written. Um, this is another one that I printed out so I can have it for the record for myself, but you find it in the show notes and it's a downloadable PDF that you can go through the full thing if you'd like there, but we'll go ahead and pull that up here. A thick one. So what we got here is uh, a paper clip, which needs to be pulled out for operation, pull out the paper clip that is bent because there's such a thick amount of documents here. Again, pandemics change cities, municipal spending and voter extremism in Germany, 1980. Introduction This paper investigates how the influenza outbreak in 1918 to 1920 affected German cities in the years after the pandemic. In particular, I analyze city spending on amenities as well as voter for the as well as voting for the extremist party in Germany between 1925 and 1933. A multitude of factors, many of which were specific to Germany in the 1920s, determined city spending and contributed to the rise in extremism. However, both per capita spending and the vote share u- obtained by extremists varied significantly across the municipalities. The variation represented tangible this variation represented tangible differences between individual cities. That reflect the preferences or beliefs of inhabitants, understanding the degree to which such preferences are correlated with major pandemics can offer insights to academic and policymakers alike German uh, sorry um there Germany represents a suitable case study for the analysis given that is suffered a high number of Influenza deaths with significant regional variation recorded detailed information on disease fatality cities or disease fatality city expenditures voting behavior etc and experienced a well documented and researched increase in extremist in extremist voting in 1920 to 1930. This paper documents several interesting and novel findings. First, areas which experienced a greater relative population decline due to the spread of influenza spend less per capita on their inhabitants in the following decade. This holds especially for the spending on amenities more likely to be consumed by the young, for example, school funding. Second, influenza deaths of 1918 are correlated with an increase in the share of votes won by right-wing extremists such as the National Socialist Workers' Party, the Nazi Party. In the crucial election of 1932 to 1933, this correlation holds even when controlling for the city's religious makeup, city wages, regional unemployment, city-level exposure to the hyperinflation of 1923, the share of the right-wing votes before the First World War, and the other characteristics associated with extremist vote share. A one-sergeant deviation, a one-standard deviation increase in the proportion of the population killed by influenza was associated with around 0.8% higher share of the votes won by the National Socialist Party. The correlation between influenza mortality and vote share was negative for left-leaning parties who also. Considered extremists such as communists. I'll just read my highlighted part again because I kind of fumbled through that a bit. A one standard deviation increase in a proportion of the population killed by influenza was associated with around 0.08% higher share of votes won by the National Socialist Party. The correlation between influenza mortality and vote share was negative for left leaning parties also considered extremists such as the communists now we will consider the source being the federal reserve bank of new york here uh staff reports again this was from may of 2020 and we're just more or less getting the context here of some of this hard data and how this man has interpreted it uh, in this way and there's lots of data to back up these claims so It should be an interesting piece of information being that it's coming from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and a study that they performed. Uh, So flipping through here, I had another section highlighted out here on page three. This paper contributes to a broad and rapidly growing literature. First, it contributes to recent papers dealing with effects of the spread of disease on various social and economic outcomes. Papers on such topics have grown in importance. As the effects of COVID-19 become more pronounced, Eichbaum et al. 2020, for instance, show that less consumption brought about by social distancing and forced store closure, closures during the COVID-19 pandemic will reduce the severity of the pandemic, but may deepen subsequent recessions. Alfaro et al. 2020 show that the changes in the progression and spread of COVID nineteen virus led stock market returns. Lead stock market returns, Bartik et al. Twenty twenty survey small and medium sized enterprises. They document a significant heterogeneity, heterogeneity, heterogeneity. heterogeneity, heterogeneity in the degree in which firms are affected and the beliefs in the SMEs about their own future and aggregate economic recovery. Horner 2020 shows that measures taken to combat the virus such as social distancing can affect people's mental health and attitudes. Burstinzini et al. twenty twenty shows how important mass media can B by highlighting that exposure to misinformation can have long-term health consequences for the exposed. So he's citing these different papers, which you can find more about in the notes here and in the actual show notes. You can actually look into those if you're interested. <clears throat> the next section I had pointed out here in this document was finally these works tie to an older though ever-growing body of research that anal- that analysis sorry that analyzes the gains made by extremists first and foremost the National Socialist Party in the elections of 1932 and 1933 the causes for the gains made by the National Socialists between 1928 when they took power over 2% of the vote and 1933 when they cemented their hold on power have been much debated for see for instance Eichengreen twenty eighteen, Ferguson nineteen ninety six, Ferguson nineteen ninety seven, Hoffman nineteen sixty five, Drauman twenty ten or sorry, twenty nineteen, Timon nineteen seventy one, and Temin nineteen ninety for a few views. Many of the preliminary causes are likely to have been economic in nature, related to unemployment, inflation, and a large expenditure cuts. The Golofe Villa et al. 19, 2019 for an excellent overview. However, many additional factors have been contributed have contributed in some way to the party's rise. Geary 2002 summarizes some of the literature on the extremist right-wing success in capturing working-class votes. Volglander and Voth 2012 and Volglander and Voth 2012b highlighted the importance of anti-Semitism in driving extremist voters. Importantly, they show how persistent certain sentiments, especially those pertaining to the hatred of others such as anti-Semitism, can be. In many regions, the sentiments lasted hundreds of years. Satyanath et al. 2017 shows that the rise of fascism was correlated with the city level density of associations. Ferguson's and Foth 2008 show the importance of links between the National Socialist Party and a large industrial firms. Indena et al. 2015 shows that propaganda helped fuel the rise of National Socialist Party. Importantly, they highlighted that the areas with pre-existing anti-Semitism were more susceptible to racist propaganda. The paper contributed to the above research by showing that the pandemics affect the provision of public goods and may be correlated with the extremist voting, an effect that may be exacerbated by pre-existing anti-minority sentiments or disease-focused propaganda. Now, the way that that would be looked at as in the modern world in America would be the current rise of you know anti-freedom, uh, anti-liberty, anti-conservative, uh, anti-people um, who stand for individualism rather than the group's rights and things like that. So being forced to take medical devices rather than having the right to choose and it, the, the demonization of these people that are you know not not willing to fight the disease would be considered you know the people that need to be attacked my reading into this as far as how it transposes into current times uh now let's go on he's talking about the tables the tables that are being referenced in this are found in the back so we're almost through the parts of this that i wanted to highlight but you can find like the data if you want to go look at some of these graphs that he's representing and pointing at so tables and data sets you can see so for those that want to look at those feel free to go ahead and do that so table four being talked about here the observation that the share of the vote won by the right-wing extremist parties correlated with Influenza mortality can be correlated, uh, corroborated in regression. Sorry, my mind gets a little thinking about everything and then I forget that I'm reading out loud in a live stream. The observation that the share of the vote won by the right-wing extremist parties correlated with influenza mortality can be corroborated in regressions. In table 4.1, I regress In Table 4, I regress the share of the vote obtained by the National Socialist Party in 1933 to 1932 and 1932 on a number of regional and city characteristics. Column 1 makes use of the most basic specifications that include only the measures of town size and change in the region's population from before to just after the war, 1910 to 1918, from World War I the percentage of the population that is jewish or catholic in 1925 the vote share won by the right-wing extremist in the election of 1912 to the change of the city's population just before the war in 1930 so skipping down here cuz that's talking about more of the data in the chart the share of votes obtained by the national socialist party was positively related to the share of the population that died from influenza in 1918 The baseline result remains significant in each specification. One standard deviation increase in the share of population that died from influenza is correlated with a between 1.6 and 2% larger vote share won by the National Socialist Party. Economic controls and the increase in the share of the population that is unemployed. Or, drop in wages are also strongly related to an increase in the share of vote obtained by the National Socialist Party. However, including such controls does not remove the direct effect of influenza mortality. Notice that they were talking about the propaganda, the disease propaganda, and all that also contributing disinformation. People
8: supporting the Nazis.
7: Order. Okay. Conclusion. Evidence suggests that the deaths brought, and just so people can know what we're reading before I read the conclusion, pandemic changed cities, municipal spending, and voter extremism in Germany. 33 by Christian Blickel from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York staff reports Staff Report Number 921, May 2020, Revised June 2020. Evidence suggests that the deaths brought about by the influenza pandemic of 1918 to 1920 may have shaped German society going forward. Regional variations in influenza mortality was related to subsequent city spending on various amenities of, for the, its population. Cities that saw a greater share of their population die due to the influenza spent less per capita going forward. Perhaps more importantly, influenza deaths themselves are correlated with the share of votes won by extremists, specifically the extremist National Socialist Party. This effect dominated, dominates many of other effects and is persistent even when controlling for the influenza of local unemployment, city spending, population changes brought about by the war and local demographics or when instrumenting for influenza mortality. The results are possibly a consequence of changes in society preferences following a pandemic. In particularly, the pandemic may have interacted with existing deep-seated anti-Semitism, anti-outsider sentiment which was further fed by the national socialist propaganda that linked disease to minorities. Given a number of econometric challenges, econometric challenges, care must be taken in the interpretation of the results. Nevertheless, this study offers a novel contribution to the decisions surrounding the long-term effects of pandemics. There's something... To look out for and be aware of um, some of those conclusions I might not agree with. Uh, Some of the results I'd have to look at more closely. but That is a a primary resource that you can pull up uh, from the show notes and look through yourself as far as uh, some of those conclusions that he came to. Like I said, um, I think the idea would be that with the propaganda and with the deaths and the different ways that the government reacted, That may have contributed to people voting more extremist even for nazis uh, at that time so it's something to be aware of as we are now in the aftermath of the bio psyop bio psy war uh that's been ongoing so as we head down the road here on this episode uh today on covid the strategic or the bio psy war strategic psychological operations we're covering a little bit of the data and the analysis of the research there from that Federal Reserve Bank of New York staff report document, but also going through and tying in some of the more, uh, the, some of the evidence that I have pulled up, you know, regarding the offensive, defensive, bioweapons research, uh, you know, and how something like this could be intentionally created in a lab to help study uh, the functionality of it to make vaccines, to make antidotes against it, and then that some ill-intentioned or even bad actor, uh, we went into that quite a bit last week, could be, you know, could release that very easily now as a bioweapon through the air, through uh, major cities, through spraying, you know, um, large dense populations. Uh, The government could easily have done this to make it look like china was the vector that the wuhan lab was where the leak was uh anything you know could have been done with the different populations the Uyghur uh population in china different uh large dense areas in china could have been used to you know help spread the virus and that that could basically very easily be done now um people in terrorist groups could come up with the idea to do this and very easily deploy the technology, which is basically available now, uh, online to go and look at for the average person to go and be able to synthesize. Now it's probably not all that easy and I'm not a, a, la- a person that works in these labs that could go and tell you how to do that kind of thing. But it, from, you know, the rapid growth in technology and where we're at now with this sort of, uh, bio research, Essentially, it looks as though people could easily create a lot of variations of coronaviruses and be spreading them around. And my theory is that this is part of the biocide apocalypse, the psy war, uh, the biocide biocide apocalypse is Dave Emery's term for the situation that we're in. Um, him and I do more tend to agree on the premise that this was intentionally released as part of an information war you can go back to previously in early 2020 when i was saying this where i feel like that this was a planned you know weaponized event not just with the actual viruses that were released or whatever you want to call these uh you know genetic chimera viruses that were created um and funded by darpa uh, heavily looking into those types of things and also now funding the people who are You know making the vaccines for these types of things so again just going through tying in some of those details for you today and we're going to go into a clip here these are a couple clips just on psychological warfare in general somewhat uh, a little cheesy you might say Um, not really meant to be like the 100 percent truth but more or less an intermission break that we can go through here and add this part into the episode so Thank you for watching. I'm not sure I haven't really checked on a lot of the tech today, so I hope things are going just as well as they should and, uh, no major issues. It looks like, no getting kicked off of, of the old goo yet for reading these articles into the record that I don't think they want you looking at, you know, and that's why I will make them easily available uh, in the show. And we're also putting this content out on other platforms. You can find me mirrored on Library and shoot as well as various audio uh, mirrors and, and then uh, on the friend networks of the One Great Work Network and the Grand Theft World uh, website. And then tomorrow we're going to go into some of the topics I have for inter- intermission. We'll go into deeper on the Grand Theft World podcast tomorrow, but I'm going to touch on a few things when we get back here, including Gates' new book that I got. Um, we're going to deep dive into a DARPA document, uh, going to some of the things that they have planned for us in the near future. DARPA has been around a lot with the things that are going a lot. They're kind of like the military side of the sweater vest, Bill Gates, uh, character. They're like the underbelly of the, you know, the Pentagon and the research that goes on there into these things like, uh, insects and other, uh, bio weapons that they're planning to use in our very near future if not already in wide use at the moment. But anyway, let me not fumble along and stumble along and get into this clip so we can come back and uncover more of the bio Psy War as we move forward today. Thank you very much for watching.
0: Allied victories on the battlefield, combined with continued German supply problems and the eventual ousting of Kaiser Wilhelm, all helped end the war by November 1918. General Erich von Ludendorff, one of the most senior members of the German General Staff, remarked that we were as hypnotized by the enemy propaganda as a rabbit is by a snake. A much lower-ranking member of the German army, a common infantryman, had also paid close attention to the Allies' success in World War I. Propaganda would become one of the cornerstones for his rise to power, the foundation upon which he would build his dream of world conquest. Following the German defeat in World War I, Adolf Hitler marveled at the Allies' successful use of propaganda in his book Mein Kampf. He wrote... Our soldiers learned to think the way the enemy wanted them to think. Throughout the 1930s, Hitler and his information minister, Joseph Goebbels, became masters of strategic and political propaganda, both within Germany and on an international scale. But once World War II began in 1939, Their focus remained more on civilian propaganda rather than on tactical psychological warfare. The British had dismantled their successful propaganda program after World War I and had to quickly scramble to resurrect their capabilities when World War II began. In the first few years of the war, the British were more willing to use black propaganda. Deceptive messages that claimed to come from one country but actually originated in another. A British propagandist named Sefton Delmer played a German radio character that claimed to be making broadcasts from an official German station inside that country. He attacked Churchill and the royal family to attract an audience and gain credibility but he also subtly criticized the Nazi party and promoted the idea that it was acceptable for German citizens to disagree with Hitler. Colorful personalities such as Delmers were common in a field where imaginative thinkers were forced to work in the structured world of the military. The British Broadcasting Corporation or BBC was often used to deliver psychological warfare messages since many German soldiers in France listened to this radio station. As the Germans prepared for a possible invasion across the English Channel in the summer of 1940, broadcasters mockingly offered to teach the invaders English phrases that they might soon need. Examples such as, I am burning and my boat is sinking, were repeated over and over again. The British were employing the truth in these messages since they did have a system in place to literally set the ocean on fire by releasing and igniting oil offshore, as well as on beaches. But what they didn't tell the Germans was that this was only a limited capability, covering a small fraction of England's southern coastline. This was a prime example of what another British propagandist, Richard Crossman, termed selective truth, meaning the truth, but not necessarily the whole truth. Often what was left out of messages was just as important as what was left in. American psychological warriors first saw action during the North Africa campaign in November 1942 where they worked jointly with their British counterparts. In fact, Allied persuasion efforts fell to a hodgepodge group from four different agencies in the two countries. General Dwight Eisenhower, commander of the North African landings, turned to Brigadier General Robert McClure to sort out the confusion.
5: He had been the military attaché in London prior to this time. So he knew the British allies. One of the reasons why McClure was selected as the man for the job because one of the duties that he had as a military attaché was press relations. It's not because he had extensive background in psychological
0: warfare. No one did. (laughs) McClure's men stumbled through much of the North African campaign. Surrender appeals were sometimes dropped on German units that had recently enjoyed several battlefield victories.
6: If we're losing, I'd say we're in retreat, then just basically forget about it. If the other side's on a roll, um,
0: you're not going to have much success. You might as well save your energy and, and shut down. By the time the Allies advanced into Italy in July 1943, their psychological warfare efforts had improved. But even when messages were properly prepared and delivered when enemy morale was sufficiently low, failure was still possible. Credibility was essential as the Allies learned after dropping one particular leaflet. It promised surrendering Germans the same food that American soldiers received, such as bacon and eggs. The Americans weren't misrepresenting facts, but German forces didn't believe that U.S. troops could possibly have access to luxuries like bacon and eggs during wartime. Even though the message was true, it backfired and made German soldiers more suspicious of future Allied persuasion efforts. When General Eisenhower was named Supreme Allied Commander and charged with retaking Western Europe in 1943, he again put Brigadier General McClure in charge of all psychological warfare activities. The man who had fallen into this field by accident had become a true believer in the power of persuasion in combat.
5: He was able to finally convince the Air Force to dedicate a special squadron to drop leaflets, aerial leaflets. That was not an easy task when the Air Force felt that their primary
9: purpose
6: was
9: This had the desired effect of frightening the population, who surrendered their civil rights and enabled the Nazis to swiftly transform Germany from republic to fascist state and launch World War II. In
0: 1940, Hitler had conquered France.
10: 35
9: million lives were given up in World War II in patriotic fervor, created by propaganda campaigns.
10: Australia
0: marches with Britain, land of plenty land of untold resources, all placed gladly, willingly, at the feet of Mother England. Look carefully at this man, he's the Emperor of Japan, whose forces have committed the appalling atrocities against British Empire and Chinese troops, and civilians, men and women in Hong Kong. These are the swine who bound and berneted our helpless soldiers in their hands. If these pictures serve to kindle a flame of vengeance throughout the civilized world, they will have served their purpose. Let
9: the cry be vengeance! Bloody vengeance! For the second time, the American public and Congress were overwhelmingly against entering the war in Europe. Another war? Not
0: for me. This time America should keep out, and I know I will. If war breaks out in Europe, I think that this country should heed the advice of its first president and avoid all foreign entanglements. In the event of war in Europe I think we should stay out of it entirely
9: so President Franklin Roosevelt needed something that could provoke Hitler into declaring war on the. US and frighten the public into action He did this by deliberately failing to warn his fleet commanders that a surprise Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor was imminent. The warnings came to him from the governments of Britain, Australia, and the Soviet Union and are now a matter of public
6: record.
9: We in Korea were among the first to alert the Americans because we know better than anyone what the vicious Japanese are capable of.
7: by Japanese troops.
0: More power to you, President Roosevelt. The entire country is behind you, thrilled with hope and patriotism.
9: As if using propaganda to send their pacifist population to war wasn't bad enough, Consider how America repaid its people for defeating the Nazis. Operation Paperclip Operation Paperclip was the safe transfer of Nazi scientists and operatives into the CIA. Nazis, like Josef Mengele, the infamous angel of death, who carried out live experiments on humans in the death
0: camps.
9: These death industry pros were given new identities as U.S. citizens and employed in U.S. laboratories to develop a dazzling array of mind control programs for the CIA, as well as new products and ideas for U.S. biochemical warfare expansion. Ultimately,
0: they discovered LSD. All that drug stuff... General Electric, DuPont...
9: Not only did companies like General Electric, DuPont, Ford, and Bell help with Operation Paperclip,
6: but so did Americans
9: like Prescott Bush, the patriarch of the president's George Bush. Documents in the National Archives and Library of Congress show that he committed treason continuously between 1924 and 1951. First, by using Jewish slave labor in collusion with the Nazis, and then by bringing those Nazis and their assets into
6: America. Despite
9: being a traitor to his country, this Nazi collaborator became a senator, and his family has assumed great power in America. But they are not the only fascist family to thrive from tyranny against humanity. Court records show that the Rockefeller's Standard Oil Company was selling more oil to Hitler's war effort than to the Allies. And for this, a federal judge ruled John D. Rockefeller committed treason against the United States.
6: Treason,
9: the most heinous crime of all.
2: Prior to World
9: War II, this man joined fellow traitor Prescott Bush and the British royal family in sponsoring the eugenics initiatives that gave rise to Hitler's racial racial (웃음) hygiene programs. (웃음) Horrifyingly, ( Cultured) today, (웃음) the (웃음) Rockefeller (웃음) family The UN and World Health Organization remain at the forefront of administering population programs designed to reduce world populations to more manageable levels. One can only imagine what terrible ideas these monsters have in store for us.
6: To understand
9: how Rockefeller avoided being punished for treason, we need to go back to World War I, when Germany was winning the war without a single shot being fired on German soil. David Ben-Gurion, the head of a powerful group of Zionists and the American Rothschild family, approached the British with the promise to bring the Americans into the war. In return, they wanted Palestine. The British agreed to this land theft, and at the cost of American lives and money which has never been repaid,
6: they signed the Balfour Declaration,
9: which was addressed to Lord Rothschild from the British government, promising Palestine to the Rothschild Zionists as a national home for Jews.
2: This is both sinister and unnecessary,
9: since Jews lived peacefully for thousands of years amidst the Arab majorities in the Middle East and had no desire to steal their land.
6: The Zionist
9: collaboration with the British worked. Germany went from winning the war to capitulating and signing the Versailles Treaty
6: at, where else, the Rothschild's Palace. Palestine was then
9: declared a British mandate, and the Zionists were able to swiftly colonize Palestine after the Second World War. On May 14, 1948, after Rockefeller leaned on smaller countries in the UN to vote Israel into the United Nations, Israel declared its independence from British mandate.
0: Today, the British mandate over the land of Israel ends. We declare a Jewish state in the ancient land of Israel. It will be called the State of Israel.
9: And one year later, had claimed 78% of Palestine,
6: despite only owning 6% of it. The first prime minister of Israel
9: was Zionist David Ben-Gurion, who employed Reuters, which was owned by the Rothschild Zionist Organization, to start an enormous propaganda campaign, which continues to this day.
6: The resolution. Once Israel was established with UN approval
9: and the world was sold on the fairy tale of Jews finally returning to Israel David Ben-Gurion started a campaign of ethnic cleansing We have taken their country
2: We must do everything to
9: ensure they never return We must use terror, assassination, intimidation land confiscation, and the cutting of all social services to rid the Galilee of its Arab population. David David
8: Ben-Gur.
7: All right, so as you can see there, that was a documentary that was translated from Japanese into uh, English, and I'll find the source for that. Otherwise, the video itself is in the links. Um, We did get dropped off of YouTube during that time as well. And not too worried about that. I figured as much would happen with the type of material that we're going to cover in the long run here. I am surprised when that happens on a live stream when I've been reading articles showing like primary sources talking about, uh, you know, DARPA documents and um, reading from the Federal Reserve documents. Um, That's mainly what we've been covering today. So a bit surprised that it wouldn't get taken down after the fact. But during the live stream, like I'm not sure what would have triggered it to do that during the live stream but uh not a big deal we'll continue on this show will be on the record we will have it up on the various mirror platforms we're currently still live streaming on bit Shoot, or sorry dtube facebook float and twitch so still places if you uh, need to catch the live stream that you can and uh hopefully that will be all right Uh, In the long run, I'll have the recording up afterward and uh, get the mp3 out there as well for the people that like to listen to the audio version. Um, Next, what we're going to do is we're going to break into this DARPA, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency document. Um, That's literally what this is called. Just a self-titled DARPA uh, booklet document, essay, PDF, really fancy highly produced, uh, document DARPA, 60 years, 1958 to 2018. And the section that I first wanted to jump into is called DARPA's quest for beneficiar uh, beneficent cyber future. Okay. But if I go back a little bit, just reading the top of this, this is a defense advanced research projects agency. Again, this document, um, Over a 60-year period, it says here, on February 7, 1958, the day the Advanced Research Projects Agency was officially established, humanity had just entered the space age. In all, the United States and our Cold War rival, the USSR, had managed to place three satellites into orbit by that date. On one of those, had already returned to Earth. Today, thousands of sophisticated satellites are overhead proof providing us with critical intelligence, meteorological data, navigational tools, and so on and so forth. Um, hence, uh, let's see, they mentioned ARPA here. Uh, obviously, DARPA and ARPA responsible. Um, they the advanced research arm of the Pentagon and responsible for the creation of the internet. Uh, we covered in the Cyber Pentagon, I believe it was, the uh, life log project that ended right around the time that Facebook started up and the ink Utel ties into Facebook and how, you know, you can see the military apparatus basically behind these operations that we call the internet and social media, um, appear to just be very well fronted, uh, propaganda arms and mind control apparatuses of the government and the military. Uh, but anyways, we'll jump down here into some of the stuff that DARPA has been working on. And I'm going to zoom into this article a little here. I may skim through this uh, a little bit more than I was planning on originally, but uh, we'll read some of the parts that I wanted to try to read into the record here for the purposes of this show. And and, and just really quick, the purposes of the, the break... The stuff that i talked about there on the break was not to like these are the documentaries that show you exactly how world war Two went down or the official historical narrative those were more just to show that like even in common documentaries that you can find online that, that are produced uh you know n- those aren't the greatest production value documentaries i can talk tell you about but they're pretty mainstream information it looks like i mean the guy sounds like he's not like reading into anything too deeply the narrator and more or less reading from a script, not even really referencing where he's getting the information, which is all kind of shady. The point is is that they are routinely using psychological operations as part of military practice. That was the point of bringing that information in at that time, to more just keep clarifying and confirming that these are ongoing things. Uh, even outside of the military, you have operations such as like Event 201 that was carried out by the John Hopkins uh, Association, and Bill and Melinda Gates uh, in October of 2019 carried out Event 201. That was also sort of like a psychological operation, if not study, of the pandemic outcome and what would, what would it would be like to unfold that out through the media and the reaction to that and what the potential outcomes could be and things like that. So that was the point of bringing that in, just to clarify that. And then the point of reading the DARPA article here is just to give more context onto more or less like what they've been up to. So let's uh, go to this one here. So much of the modern life take much of modern life takes place online in cyberspace. A variety of threats have emerged to imperil the future of the cyber domain, where more and more of our commercial and societal activity unfolds. Securing cyberspace has become a priority at the highest levels of government, including the White House. DARPA is the leading edge of our nation's pursuit of beneficent cyber future. Roughly the legacy of the past. Roughly half half a century ago, DARPA, when it was known as ARPA, Advanced Research Project Agency Program Manager's Conceived, implemented, and demonstrated the ARPANET, the proof-of-concept precursor of the Internet. The principal advance of ARPANET resided in the introduction of packet-switched communications to achieve a dramatic advance in efficiency by which the information packets wound their way through available wires and intercomputer linkages by 1977 ARPANET had grown into a national network connecting university, commercial and government research activities. The initial engineering of ARPANET focused on providing basic communication services and accountability was not included as primary design goal. These design choices were intentional according to a historical account of the origin original network protocols developed by ARPA. Since this network was designed to operate in military context, survivability was put at the very first goal of accountability as the last goal. An architecture primarily focused primarily for commercial deployment would clearly place these goals in opposite end of the list. Instead of building in reliable attributions mechanisms, users' behavior would loosely governed by rules and norms. For example, at the MIT AI lab circa 1982, it was simply decreed that, quote, it is considered illegal to use ARPANET for anything which is not in direct support of government business, unquote. The critical need for a stronger security and control mechanism was not yet apparent. So they go through and talk about how they basically created the Internet, as you can see, as a military apparatus. But, of course, they will change the rules as they go along for the, when it becomes used for the uh, general public. And we skip ahead a little bit and read here, affecting the cyber present. During the 2000s, DARPA funded selected efforts in cybersecurity. In 2010, DARPA centralized cyber R&D with new offices, the Information Innovation Office I2O. The creation, I2O, included the hiring of well-known computer science and cyber experts from academia and greatly expanded DARPA's cyber, cyber program portfolio and investments to stimulate the interest and involvement of cyber community. DARPA hosted on no- November 7, 2011, the Cyber Colloquium that was attended by approximately 700 researchers, operators, and other stakeholders for industry, academy, and government. The DARPA cyber colloquium was a bright signal in the, US broad, in the broad US cyber R&D community that DARPA would bring in its unique project-centric approach. So DARPA still, you know, running operations, running plans, uh, looking into and researching other aspects and outlets and ways to use the internet, vision of the cyber future they go into, uh, potentially growing domestic attacks serve a uh, vector lack of visibility and limited intelligence. Many cyber attacks and so-called advances. Persistent threats remain undiscovered for extended periods while other attacks have never been conclusively attributed even with significant forensic efforts as a result, it is difficult, if not impossible, to estimate with the confidence of the cyber capabilities of potential cyber adversary. Moreover, while defense cyber technologies development is a large and growing commercial activity, offensive cyber technology is typically developed in secret by both nation states and diverse criminal enterprises. So again, always that ongoing justification of continuing their advanced research because of the potential threats sort of like a, you know, the the paradox of the situation that we're in. Um, so let's jump down to page 74, where we're going to uh, start into this, uh, let's see, did I pass it? No. That was interesting, though. They also go into, like, their command and control satellite deployment grid there. Security and surprises at biological scales. The power and challenge this is uh, page 74 of the DARPA um, 60-year publication the evolution of defense technology and starting out this section the power and challenge of biology as the basis of technology reside in its adaptability and resilience and from those attributes spring the seeds of surprise DARPA's mission is to master surprise and so the agency has embraced biotechnology and focused its investments on mitigating threats to human health and global stability, improving military training and readiness, and rethinking current approaches to traditional defense missions in the seventh decade of DARPA's based innovation. The four-year-old Biological Technologies Office, BTO, is set to transform biology from a niche specialization within the Department of Defense into fundamental source and high impact capabilities among them force protection, sensing, command, control, communications. And then they go into their, uh, this picture here is like a fly. You could see, and it says that the threat to force health and readiness posed by infectious disease is persistent and evolving. BTO is developing a range of countermeasures to natural and endangered threats, such as technologies to predict, viral evolution and spread, contain disease within animal reservoirs, disrupt disease vectors' ability to transmit viruses, and control or remediate the effect of gene editors. So they're creating insect allies, as we've discussed previously in the last episode on the Bio-Sci war, and we'll just read a little bit here. DARPA is not alone in this game. Across the board, the growing of affordability and access to tools to modify biological systems means that the nations and even individuals have the resources to engineer systems and organisms to have altered or new functions. Considered the dramatic decrease of the cost of sequencing a genome, paired with widely available tools for editing genes, now virtually any person anywhere might experiment with genetic modifications. Much of that research has positive ends, but all biotechnologies have the potential to be dual use, and there is always the risk of unintended consequences. just want to break in and say that's basically what I've been saying, you know, in this series since uh, the beginning is that all this research is, uh, now widely available into people's hands that could be malicious and it's not that hard for them to get their hands on it. DARPA, the, you know, military arm of the Pentagon here, uh, the research arm of the Pentagon agrees with, uh, you know, basically what I'm saying that there's a high chance that, uh, you know, some of the stuff that they themselves have been developing could be used nefariously. Incorporating biotechnologies into DoD operations requires a deliberate effort, beginning with familiarizing potential and end users with emerging technologies, demonstrating capabilities in context relevant to DoD missions, and creating opportunities to integrate those capabilities into DoD organizations. Part of DARPA's challenge is breaking through subtle institutional preconceptions about what is and what is not possible. A generation of military leaders raised on a diet of science fiction may be inclined to perpetually relegate certain biotechnologies to the vague future. But in fact, BTO's talented roster of program managers and research performers not only operates at the frontier of science, but thinks beyond them. And the seeds of those tools and capabilities that might sound fantastical already exist today. The emerging importance of biological technologies for national security is an important decision-making driver for Dr. Stephen Walker, Director of DARPA's bio, uh, quote, "biological percolates through percolates through every aspect. Sorry, let me start again. Stephen Walker, the director the director of DARPA says, quote, "Biology percolates through every aspect of the Department of Defense." The people who serve the missions they carry out, and the technologies that facilitate their performance will exist within an organic world and we are building the tools to engage what that world in uh, engage with that world in new ways. Walker said unquote. quote as the DoD accelerates its modernized push, the technologies coming out of BTO could transform how the service carry." Services carry out their missions, and DARPA's, DARPA is committed to facilitating the integration of biological capabilities into the total force. Uh, just skipping down a little bit here reinventing approaches to bio threats. The United States confronts a potential national, national security threat each time a new outbreak of infectious disease occurs. Anywhere in the world, the nationwide spread of H1N1 flu in 2009, the spread of of MERS in 2013 and the presence of Ebola in Texas in 2014 are recent reminders of this reality. A single viral particle has the power to replicate billions of times over, introducing communicable disease to large cities, overwhelming hospitals, inciting mass terror, and dramatic reduction of readiness of our military, governmental, functional, or sorry, governmental and infrastructure elements all of which require healthy personnel to run them. And in this connected world, a virus can circle the planet on jetliners in less than 36 hours. So keep in mind, this was written in 2018. They go on to say, Risks posed by naturally occurring outbreaks are only one concern. Recent advances in synthetic biology and gene editing have reduced long-standing barriers to the entry for nefarious actors wishing to develop engineered biothreats, Doing so no longer requires a detailed understanding of molecular biology, wet lab skills, or access to live pathogens. The widespread availability and reduced cost of DNA sequencing and, more importantly, DNA synthesis have made it possible to reconstitute erratic pathogens. U.S. and Canadian researchers reported in 2017 that they have synthesized the horsepox virus, and to create new ones de novo, advances in gene editing also open the way for direct modification of the human genome and the construction of gene drives that override traditional inheritance of offspring in ways that can propagate specific traits and biological functions throughout an entire population. There is currently a mismatch between the rapidity at which bio-threats can emerge and proliferate and the response time for developing and deploying effective countermeasures. Traditional biodefense technologies are designed to primarily to counter known pathogens, and even still, they require long lead times to develop responses. So you could see, this is me speaking here, that they are, you know, building out the scenario, oops, that camera's not good. They're building out the scenario where because this is so prevalent and wide scale, obviously DARPA has to be, um, you know, the king of the pond. And so what is it that DARPA plans to do about that problem? The cycle is time-consuming enough for known and predictable threats. It can be tra- tragically s- slow when it comes to unfamiliar pathogens, which can spread at a pandemic scale, before researchers can devise countermeasures. Big problem for DARPA. So we're just gonna skip down a little bit here. BTO Pandemic Prevention Platform P3 program encapsulates one such approach with the ambitious goal of halting a pandemic in 60 days or less. It builds on pioneering DARPA's research into gene encoding therapeutics and is designed to achieve higher therapeutic potency and efficiency compared to... So this is basically the mRNA vaccine predecessor or the research they were doing at that time, it sounds like, where they're talking about being able to modify your genes on the fly in order to react to the bio-threats. And that's basically what DARPA is pumping into the Moderna vaccines... And, you know, they go into all this other stuff. Uh, it, this this gets creepier and creepier as you go. And eventually they're talking about, you know, autonomous technology cometh. And uh, putting that inside of your head with microchips. And how they'll use all that in the defense grid. And how drones are going to be monitoring cities and assisting the military in their operations. And a bunch of other things that I wanted to go into but I think we're going to be running short on time fighting in mega cities here's the interesting part about the drones um, monitoring you essentially and they're talking about for military use only but you know they'll never be using this stuff at home like there's the way they talk about it though is you could essentially just apply this to this is what they want to roll out everywhere this is not just for warfare or things like that taking neurotechnology into new territory in the laboratory at a university, this is on you know page uh, 90 in this document. It's a new section called Taking Neurotechnology into New Territory. In a laboratory at the University of Utah, Doug's virtual left hand reached out and touched the virtual door for just a second before he quickly pulled it back. A few moments later, he extended his virtual fingers again and ran them down a simulated wood grain of the door surface. I just felt that door, Doug said with a gasp. That is so cool. So this section goes into virtual reality and the um, implanting of chips, different neurological things into your brain. Rolling uh and your motions and emotions and things and storing memories, neurotechnology. There's there's so much here to read into, but this is this is what the vaccines that DARPA's researching are really all about: is getting these this uh, technology inside of you that they're talking about here. Um, again, I think today, if I went through and tried to read all this, we would end up running too long. But this is going to be available for you to download and take that and look in look through that document yourself. But I, I just wanted to go to show that they're they're talking about the same thing that I've been talking about this whole time. That this stuff is you know, they're saying it's easily to sequence these viruses and it's easy for someone to come along and do that. And so they want to be out in front of that with you know, technologies that can modify you within like, you know, within whatever they need that your DNA to react to at that point or whatever. Um, so that's that's what they're laying out there and what are some of the other things that that uh darpa has been working on here let's see Uh, we have scientists accused darpa of genetically modifying insects for bioweapon to spread agricultural viruses this is from the last american vagabond Uh, a scathing report was published in science magazine this week this is october 5th of 2018 That accuses DARPA of developing a bioweapon that uses swarms of modified insects to deliver viruses. That's what they were just talking about in their own document. DFTP, let's see, the Free Thought Project, scientists accuse DARPA of genetically modifying insects for bioweapons to spread. Uh, agricultural viruses that's interesting that it's an accusation here from the gizmodo points out if you think this sounds scary you're not alone <laughs> the lead author of the new science policy forum report richard guy reeves from the national from the department of evolutionary genetics at max Planck institute for evolutionary biology plan says the insect allies program is distributing examples of dual use research in which darpa In addition to helping our farmers is also working on a potential weapon. Obviously DARPA admitting themselves that everything they're creating and working on could be potentially dual use. I had this here, um, but I don't think this is the article I wanted here. Let's see technology rising. Yeah. Okay. We're going to go into that. yeah so essentially uh what i wanted to cover again just going over that darpa is doing the things that they are but then also that you know the bill and melinda gates foundation in this article again that we read into the record last week we read on the show we read the whole article bats gene editing and bioweapons recent darpa experiments raise concerns amid the coronavirus outbreak. We also covered that on Grand Theft World 15, the Internet of Humans, and down at the bottom, this important section talking about DARPA and its partners chosen to develop the coronavirus vaccine. Last Thursday, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, CEPI, introduced that it would fund three separate programs in order to promote the development of a vaccine for a new coronavirus responsible for the current outbreak. CEPI, which describes itself as a partnership of public and private philanthropic and civil organizations that will finance and coordinate the development of vaccines against high-priority public health threats, unquote, was founded in 2017 by the governments of Norway and India, along with the World Economic Forum and Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. It's massive funding and close connections to the public, private, and nonprofit organizations have positioned it to be able to finance the rapid creation of vaccines and widely distribute them. SEPI's recent announcement revealed that it would fund two pharmaceutical companies Ianovo Pharmaceuticals and Moderna, as well as Australia Australia's University of Queensland, which became a partner in SEPI's early last year. Notably, the two pharmaceutical companies chosen have close ties to and strategic partnerships with DARPA and are developing vaccines that controversially involve genetic material and gene editing. The University of Queensland also has ties to DARPA, but those ties are not related to the university's biotechnology research, but instead engineering and missile development. For instance, the top funder and of Inovo uh, Pharmaceuticals includes both DARPA and the Pentagon's Defense Threat Research Agency, DTRA, Threat Reduction Agency. And the company has received millions in dollars in grants from DARPA, including $45 million in grants to develop a vaccine for Ebola. Inovio, Inovio specializes in the creation of DNA immunotherapies and DNA vaccines, which contain genetically engineered DNA that causes cells to, of the, reci- of the recipient to produce an antigen and can prem- permanently alter a person's DNA. Anovio previously developed the DNA vaccine for the Zika virus, but to date no DNA vaccine has been approved for use in humans, so on and so forth. Down here it says, however, the CEPI grant to combat coronaviruses may change that, as it specifically funds Inovio's efforts to continue developing DNA vaccines for the coronavirus that causes MERS. Uh, Inovio's MERS vaccine program began in 2018 in partnership with CEPI. In a deal worth $56 million, the vaccines currently under development. Uses DN quote Inovio's DNA medicine platform to deliver optimized synthetic antigenic genes into cells and they are translated into proteins antigens and activated an individuals immune system unquote and the program is partnered with the US Army Medical Research Institute of Defexis Infectious Disease USAMRIID and the National Institute of Health among others that program is currently undergoing tests in the Middle East as we discussed earlier you know that being the fort dietrich lab in maryland that has had issues uh, getting shut down because of uh, biosafety hazards after it was shut down in 2014 uh, for similar uh, concerns regarding the gain-of-function research and then re started up that research in 2017 and then in august of 2019 uh, being shut down again for uh, biosafety hazards now again we'll refer back to this article again and uh have you go take a look at that for now uh i want to read a little bit of the technocracy rising the trojan horse of the cabal of transformation by patrick wood and we're going to go into a clip from patrick wood and to do this we're going to get out the good old document cam we'll switch the mic around a little bit like that and we are going to read oops That's the problem with the sticky notes is they can damage the book as well. Uh, Technocracy and the Third Reich. A section here, Patrick Wood's Technocracy Rising. Now, this is The Trojan Horse of Global Transformation by Patrick M. Wood. Uh, The dark horse of the New World Order is not communism, socialism, or fascism. It is technocracy. You could read a little bit about this book here. It says the dark horse of the New World Order is not communism socialism, or fascism. It is technocracy. Started in 1930s, the reintroduction of the Trilateral Commission in 1973 as the new international economic order. It is now known by names like the Sustainable Development and Green Economy, and that's going to become important with how we kind of wrap up today's show. I think I actually just lost my place, but it's okay because... Down as well, so let's continue here on the back cover just to figure out a little bit about what this book is. If you've never heard of Technocracy or Patrick Wood, we want to give a little context before we just dive right in. Technocracy is a movement started in the 1930s by engineers, scientists, and technicians that proposed the replacement of capitalism with an energy based economy. Originally envisioned for North Americans only, it is now being applied on a global basis the authors Aldous Huxley and George Orwell believed that technocracy would result in a scientific dictatorship as reflected in their books Brave New World and 1984 Patrick Wood is the author of the le- and lecturer who has studied elite globalization policy since the late 1970s when he partnered with the late Anthony C Sutton and co-authored Trilaterals over Washington Volumes 1 and Volumes 2. He remained a leading expert on the elitist trilateral commission, their policies and achievements in creating their self-proclaimed new international economic order. An economist by education, a financial analyst and writer by profession, and an American constitutionalist by choice, Wood has deep historical insight into the modern attacks on sovereignty, people's rights, and personal freedom. Such attacks are epitomized by the implementation of UN policies such as Agenda 21, sustainable development, smart growth, and in education, the widespread adaption of common core. Okay, so a little bit of background there on Patrick Wood as we dive in on uh, the chapter from Passion to Meltdown on page 36, Technocracy and the Third Reich. got to grab a drink here. In both ideology and practice, technocracy found better soil in Nazi Germany than it did in the United States. At the time, the world, the word technocracy was not yet anathema to the nation's press. For instance, in nineteen thirty three, the New York Times correctly tied together technocracy and Nazi leaders. A strong but non imperialistic Germany rising to the heights of prosperity through proper applications of technocracy was pictured to the German masses in the usual weeks in the usual weekend barrage of speeches by Nazi leaders today, emphasis added. <laughs> it has been noted that technocracy in america did not secede due to a lack of social strategy with which to implement itself this was not the case in germany where technocracy had grown at the same pace for the same reasons in the u.s the german industrial machine was well acquainted with taylorism and the application of scientific management engineering science and research were highly esteemed as a gateway to the future prosperity and strength germany felt the pain and the great depression of the great depression to a worse degree than the u.s because it had never been recovered from the dislocations and consequences of world war one thus germany was driven to excel in all the areas in all in all the areas of advancement its techno- technocratic movement that had started in 1920 was fully asserting itself by the time Hitler ascended to power. Dr. Gottfried Feeder, secretary to the Ministry of the Economy, echoed technocratic thinking in a 1933 speech before the National Socialists of da Zing, Danzing. The liberalism, capitalistic age long ago exhausted the possibility of consuming production made possible by great technological developments. Thereupon man became a slave of the machine. National socialism, on the other hand, realized that mighty technical tasks and possibilities have remained which can be solved only by the planned mobilization of technique for the battle against unemployment. The wealth of every people is measured by its capacity and organization to organize its resources that's the end of that section in an earlier new york times article documented some similarities and differences between the german and american technocratic movements and this is another section from that germany has her own technocratic movement in the technokritisch union the headquarters in berlin although it was taken its t- its name from the american counterpart It is not an offshoot of the latter, but is an indigenous growth nevertheless. German technocracy, which has just taken organized form, agrees with the American brand in all but two major points. And those are referenced sources. Reading on, first, the Germans didn't buy into Scott's system of energy credits, which they termed electric dollars. Second, they stressed humanism as the religion of technocracy, whereas Scott wanted nothing to do with any kind of religion. However, the points of agreement are revealing. Like their American economic kin, they are against capitalism, against the profit system, and against the gold standard. So similar to what Klaus is sh- saying now with his technocratic bo- buddies over there. All right, I, I don't need to get away from the mic there, I guess. Uh, the Inclusive Capitalism Group and the World Economic Forum. And uh, look at that. Back to my desk. Dream deck there.
8: Okay. So
7: let's move into the next page here. Was planning to read to the end of the chapter. Let's see what we can get through here the next little bit before we just jump in and let Patrick explain the rest. Okay, so he references that again, and that's from the IBID talking about. um. So let's jump ahead. Let's see of skipping the end, let's see if we can come to Rebirth. Yes, Rebirth. Rebirth, on page 40 of Technocracy Rising, the 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 Trojan Horse of Global Transformation by Patrick M. Wood. Whatever technocracy represented in the 1930s and earlier, it was cleverly Regurgitated in Zbigniew Berninski's book Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technotronic Era. I was going to see if I had that right here. I have the Grand Chessboard book, yeah. Uh, this book... Oh, I, did, I downloaded it. I think I have it on my reader. Okay. This book was never a bestseller on any literary list, but was the book that caught the eye of the admiration of David Rockefeller. The Rockefeller dynasty, and David in particular, had always had difficult time maintaining good public relations with the American public. Collectively, the Rockefellers represented the global-minded Eastern establishment that was bent on selling American sovereignty to international interests. Simply put, Rockefeller needed a young, blood American like Brzezinski in order to justify his own globalist dreams. The fact that Brzezinski was a professor at Columbia University opens up the necessary side note regarding the connection between the Rockefeller family and Columbia in 1928. John D. Rockefeller, Jr. leased the ground to develop the future Rockefeller Center in New York City from Columbia University. In fact, Rockefeller took on a 27-year lease with three 21-year options to renew for a total of 87-year lease. The lease was cut short in 1985 after 52 years when the Columbia, when Columbia agreed to sell the 11.7 acres of land under the Rockefeller Center to the Rockefeller Group for a tidy all-cash uh, sum of $400 million. It was a record price for any parcel ever sold in New York City, To put this windfall into perspective, the total value of Columbia existing endowment and the time was reported to be only 683 million. When adding that sum to 52 years of lease payments reported to be 11.1 million dollars per year in 1973 onward, the Rockefeller clan. Uh. Can be seen as a major benefactor of Columbia University, if not the major benefactor in the 20th century. But Rockefeller family involvement with Columbia predated the Rockefeller Center leasing arrangement by at least 70 or several years. In 1919, John D. Rockefeller financed the building of Teachers College Columbia University with a one million one time gift which was noted at the time as being the largest gift ever made by an institution for training teachers. I am just skipping ahead a little bit. You can see how they uh, brought in Brzezinski as uh, the young technocrat. And uh, let's just go here and read out through the end In not to be brief, but only in the in essence of time here that I have today to read through this. But I suggest that you do pick up the book and read the whole thing, which is in the show notes. In Brzezinski's technotronic era, then, the nation state as a fundamental unit of man's organized life has ceased to be the principal creative force. International banks and multinational corporations are acting and planning in terms that are far in advance of political concepts of the nation state. Brzezinski's philosophy clearly pointed forward to Richard Gardner's hard road to the world order. That appeared in Foreign Affairs in 1974, where Gardner stated In short, the house of the world order would have to be built from the bottom up rather than from the top down. It will look like a great booming, buzzing c- confusion to the William James famous description of the reality, but an end run around national security, national sovereignty, eroding it piece by piece will accomplish much more than the old-fashioned frontal assault. The former approach, which had produced few successes during the 1950s and 1960s, was being traded for a velvet sledgehammer. It would make little noise, but would still drive the spikes of globalization deep into the heart of nations around the world, including the United States. Indeed, the trilateral commission jointly established by Brzezinski and Rockefeller was, chosen, was the chosen vehicle that finally got the necess- necessary traction to actually create the new international economic order. In over 40 years since the funding of the Trilateral Commission, the historical record clearly testifies to its success. The applied doctrine of Agenda 21, sustainable development, and the energy smart grid that have resulted from trilateral interactions testify to their ideology grounding in historic technocracy and then of course he goes into the trilateral commission which is sort of like the inner cabinet of the council on foreign relations and i was going to say you could pull out well we'll just move forward from there so let's let's go into after reading from technocracy rising patrick woods Patrick and Wood there. We're going to go into a little clip from Patrick himself so I can take a a quick breath and get uh, from his own words. And this is kind of funny how this guy kind of lambasts him as a conspiracy theorist when really I think he's, once you're on the know, this guy's kind of the dumbass. So, but anyways, here we go. Let's watch this clip.
6: Sometimes you know what you know, and sometimes you know what you don't know, and sometimes, as the Fireside Theater says, everything you know is wrong. You know that you're wrong, but you no? fear
10: you're right. You, you suspect you're out, you're out of sync. You think you're that you're of out of you're your mind.
4: Everything you know is wrong.
6: When people think of a dystopian future, they generally think of a society run according to the tenets of one of the two totalitarian philosophies, communism and fascism or if they're a big fan of Hollywood movies like Terminator or The Matrix, they probably think of a world run by evil machines. But as compelling as it is to believe that Skynet is coming for us all, some people believe that the real threat to world democracy comes from a powerful class of people known as the technocrats. Joining me now to help explain why he's so afraid of the technocrats is Patrick Wood, editor of the August Forecast and the August Review, and author of the book Technocracy Rising, the Trojan Horse of global transformation. Patrick Wood, welcome.
1: How do you do, Tom? Thank you for having me on.
6: Thanks for joining us. Who are the technocrats and why should we be worried about them taking over?
1: Well, the technocrats actually, the the technocracy movement started out in the 1930s and was very uh, highly detailed at that time by leading scientists and engineers from that era. It's been picked up again as a philosophy uh, in this modern era, at least the last 40 years, and it's uh, being brought back to us, if you will, slightly modified, but still basically the same old story from the 1930s. And the idea of technocracy was to replace capitalism altogether. Um, They believed in the 30s uh, that capitalism was dead, and uh, everybody's mad at politicians, and so the scientists and engineers of the day, some of them, not all, some decided that they would craft a new economic system that would replace capitalism altogether. And it was to be an energy-based system rather than a price-based economic system that that we have known, of course, all of our lives. And this is an economic system that's never been tried in the history of the world. It's never been tested. It's never been discussed and debated by economists. And yet it's coming to us like a freight train today. And basically anything that has to do with energy you know things like cap and trade, for instance, climate warm issue, warming issue has a lot of uh, 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 things to bear on it. Uh, these things are basically rooted in historic technocracy, and it concerns yeah. me a lot because nobody's discussing it.
6: Yeah, you said you know Al Gore and, and Bill Clinton are part of this massive conspiracy that the whole climate change thing. I was I was surprised to see John Negroponte in there. I. My recollection of John Negroponte is he's the guy who showed up in El Salvador and suddenly people started having their hands tied behind their back and a bullet in the back of the head. And then and then he was sent off to Iraq and weeks later people started showing up with their hands tied behind their back and a bullet in their heads. Um, what's John Negroponte's role in this?
1: Well you know, the the movement was never, at least since the nineteen early 1970s, the movement has not been political at all. There have been uh, people from the left and the right with... Uh, and, and as members of this organization that, that I write about, particularly called the Trilateral Commission, this has not been a partisan operation at all. They have their own agenda, and they pick members from both sides of the aisle, if you will, to uh, to represent, you know, to carry out the policies that they decided on.
6: Of, of John Negroponte
1: is simply one of them.
6: Yeah. Okay. Um, tell me about the megachurch movement and its role in all this. You mentioned Rick Warren.
1: Well. You know, back in, the, back in the 1980s, there was um, a, a curious merger in the Christian world of uh, a thought that was called communitarianism and Christianity and combined with Christianity. Communitarianism was not rooted in any biblical thought whatsoever. It was um, uh, promoted the idea that, that individuals have no value in themselves necessarily. But the value that they have is, is, according to their connection to the community, and uh, Peter Drecker was the primary uh, spokesman, if you will, for that philosophy for many years, especially in the end of his life. And Peter Drecker was the guy who brought this philosophy to uh, the early megachurch movement, and people like Rick Warren were inducted into it, and um, you know that's how they got their start. Right. Another prominent pastor today, Bill right. Hybels. We have, um, we have just,
6: just uh, a little less than a minute left. I, I, I'm fascinated by this. You're suggesting that rather than having a world run by people like the Koch brothers and the Walton family, we could have a world run by smart people, scientists and engineers. Is that bad?
1: Well, you know, it, it, we need experts to run certain segments of society. We absolutely do. But I think the bottom line comes
6: down But why down should with- the billionaires be running everything?
1: Well, it's like this. Is, is technology going to serve us or are we going to serve technology? And as far as the, the technocrats are concerned, they wanted uh, the people to serve technology that they were serving up. And I think this, is, personally, I think this is an un-American idea that, uh, that we should be serving anybody other than ourselves. And plus, it hasn't been vetted or routed through our normal political process that we have in Congress. Okay. And-
6: Patrick Wood, thank you so much for being with us tonight.
1: Thank
6: you, Tom. And now everything you know about technocracy is right.
7: There you go. A better explanation of of the technocracy idea. And we're going to be kind of tying that in because, you know, DARPA has obviously gone off on a tangent that says that they can just do whatever they want. You have... Uh, the technology that they're developing being claimed to be something that can, you know, be injected inside of you and change your DNA. If this is not a technocratic takeover, I mean, I don't know what is. And, uh, as you know, like Patrick was saying, and as we just read, the technocracy movement was, it was an older movement and, uh, had some ties into the Nazis and things like that. That was pretty interesting. But then also that, you can follow that, track that up to the modern day. You have people like John Podesta, uh, or, uh, sorry, John P. Holdren in the uh, Obama White House, the science Are for Obama, who uh, wrote the book. Uh, he, he seems like somewhat of a te- technocrat himself and uh, wrote the book on eco-science um, that I did have pulled up for a reading through and uh, looking through for the Grand Theft World podcast, but apparently right now. Yeah, so it's here. Um, I have that book here. Page one, population resources, environmental dimensions of the human predicament. It is clear that the future of history will be determined by the rates at which people breed and die and the rapidity at which non-renewable resources are consumed by the extent and speed which are agriculturally production can be improved by the rate at which the underdeveloped areas can industrialize by the rapidity with which we are able to develop new resources, as well as the extent to which we succeed in avoiding future wars, all of these factors are interlocked. Um, that's the top of this thing. I think this is the wrong Um, version of this book that I just pulled up so hold on you know what we'll we'll save that my program is having a problem here anyway so we'll 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 hold that to the side okay and we're gonna move ahead here into the next things that we wanted to talk about which was um, okay uh first of all this was interesting okay so this is uh this is an article from Mercola, Dr. Mercola, and I actually did print this one out as well because I wanted to have it for the record for my own record. So I'll just go to back to the desk cam here. And, uh, this is from February 4th of 2020, um, from Joseph Mercola. And I uh, just wanted to read this into the towards the wrapping up of this episode here. Um, but his his stance is essentially that there was an accidental release of the virus and that it was uh, not intentional, and I do probably disagree with him on that. Um, but uh, the article itself can be found in the show notes, but I'm going to jump ahead to the moratorium on SARS and MERS experiment lifted in 2017 section and just read through from here. As mentioned... A number of reports raise questions about the source of the 2019 NCOV. For starters, a 2014 NPR article was rather prophetic in discussing the October 2014 U.S. moratorium on experimental, Experiments on Coronaviruses like SARS and MERS, as well as in the influenza virus. That might make the viruses more pathogenic or easier to spread among humans. The ban came on the heels of a high-profile lab mishap at the CDC and extremely controversial flu experiments in which the bird flu virus was engineered to become more lethal and contagious between ferrets. The goal was to see if it could mutate and become more lethal and contagious between humans causing future pandemics. However, for the past decade, there have been red flags raised in the scientific community about biosecurity breaches in high-contaminated biological labs in the U.S. and globally. There were legitimate fears that the lab-created superflu pathogen might escape the confines of biosecurity labs where researchers are conducting experiments it is reasonab- a reasonable fear, certainly considering that there have been many safety breaches in bio labs in the U.S. <coughs> and other countries. The federal moratorium on lethal virus experiments in the U.S. was lifted at the end of December 2017, even though researchers announced in 2015 that they had created a lab, hy- created a hybrid coronavirus similar to that of SARS, which was capable of infecting both human airway cells and mice. The NIH had allowed the controversial research to proceed because it had begun before the moratorium was put in place a decision criticized by Simon Wayne Hobson a virologist at Pasteur Institute in Paris who joined out of that if the new virus escaped nobody could predict the trajectory Others, such as Richard Elbright, a molecular biologist and defense expert at Rutgers University, agreed, saying the only impact of this work is the creation in a lab of a new non-natural risk. Wuhan, and then this next section here from the article from Dr. Mercola, uh, which you can find in the show notes from February 4th of 2020, New Novel Coronavirus is the Latest Pandemic Scare. Um, I'm going to actually, Wuhan is home. Okay. So this, I think before we can incredibly give this guy enough information to be able to be saying this again, uh, I think the Wuhan lab is more or less set up as a fall guy or a Patsy as Dave Emery calls it. The Oswald Institute of Virology, uh, was not necessarily the source, but rather some of these other characters that we've been reading about in the past who were experimenting with these things. Uh, even over a decade ago and uh, would have been used as the technocratic takeover and the means to implement uh, all the different green plans and green agendas and climate change things that we'll talk about here in a second. I'm just going to read coronavirus outbreak simulations took place in October 2019. Uh, This was also pretty interesting. Um, He talks about event 201, which we haven't really covered on TylerBloyer.com much, but we have covered in the Grand Theft World podcast, which you can refer, I think, all the way even back to episode one and two. Uh, Let's see. He says, equally curious is the fact that John Hopkins Center for Health and Security, the World Economic Forum, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation sponsored a novel coronavirus pandemic preparedness exercise October 18th, 2019 in New York City called Event 201. The simulation predicted a global death toll of 65 million people within a span of 18 months, as reported by Forbes December 12, 2019. The experts ran through, this is a quote from the Forbes article, I suppose, The experts ran through a carefully designed detailed simulation of new fictional viral illnesses called CAPS, or Coronavirus Acute Pulmonary Syndrome, that was modeled after pre- previous academics like SARS and MERS. Sounds exactly like NCIP, doesn't it? Yet the new coronavirus responsible for NCIP had not yet been identified at the time of the simulation and was first case wasn't reported until two months later. Forbes also refers to the fictional pandemic disease X, the same designation used by the Telegraph in its January 24th, 2020 report called Could This quote, could this Coronavirus Be Disease X? Unquote, which suggests that the media outlets were briefed and there was coordination ahead of time with regards to the use of certain keywords and catchphrases in which news reports and opinions articles. Now this is the part that I found interesting here. Uh, John Hopkins University is the bigger recipient of the research grants from the federal agencies, including the National Institute of Health, National Science Foundation, and Department of Defense, and has received millions of dollars in research grants from the Gates Foundation. So, Gates Foundation funding the World Economic Forum, funding John Hopkins University, which are all involved in uh, the research and the causes and events seemingly leading up to this and if research okay in 2016 Jobs, John Hopkins spent more than 2 billion on research projects leading all US universities in research spending for the 38th year in a row if research funded by federal agencies such as the DOD or HHS is classified as being performed in the interest of national security it is exempt from freedom of information act requests let's just read that again If research funded by the federal agencies, such as the DOD or HHS, is classified as being performed in the interest of national security, the famous phrase, uh, then it is exempt from Freedom of Information Act requests. Research conducted under the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, BARDA, is completely shielded from FOIA requests, By the public additional agencies may deny FOIA requests and withhold information if government officials conclude that shielding it from public view protects trade secrets and commercial or financial information which could harm the competitive posture or business interests of a company so i would only have to ask you there why why is that why can we not obtain the Freedom of Information Act requests uh, for the funding from federal agencies such as the DOD or HHS um, in these uh, experiments and this, this funding that they're doing? Why can't we have a Freedom of Information Act request about that? The U.S. Center of Disease Control and Prevention under the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services states that the mission to protect the American from health, safety, and security threats from both U.S. clearly... Problem. Uh, Clearly, it will be difficult to obtain information about government funded biomedical research on microbes like coronavirus conducted at all major universities or pharmaceutical corporations in biohazard labs. How likely is it then that the coronavirus outbreak making people sick today suddenly, quote unquote, emerged simply because people ate bats and snakes in Wuhan market? It looks more like a biosecurity accident. I would disagree with him there i said, say it looks more like a biosecurity war, uh, bioinformation, bio psyop, bio uh, psy war. Until more is known, inevitably, there will be more questions than answers about whether this latest global public health emergency is more ambitious, tactical, sand table exercise, echoing unanswered questions about the 2009 swine flu pandemic fiasco. That again, I appreciate the article from Dr. Mercola, which you can find the uh, modern digital version here, you know, on the computer. So you not only is that printed out on my black and white printer, but I'll put that in the show notes. You can go read through that and click open the references and links and materials that go into that. So at this point, I'm just going to tab it out to see where we're at here. Okay. Um, one thing I was going to do, Yeah, uh, military is planning to use insects to spread weapons. That's not a problem. Agricultural research or a new bio system. This is a paper from October of 2018 talking about, uh, the agricultural, uh, research that DARPA has been doing and they've been uh, aiming to disperse infectious genetically modified viruses that have been engineered to edit crop chromosomes uh, directly so that's fun Um, we'll go dig into some of this stuff probably more in the next episode or specifically maybe if we talk about food or we're just really kind of uncovering this stuff i'm learning a lot as i go and uncover these things with you I'm not an expert in any of this. I'm more or less like doing research and hoping to share it so that you don't have to necessarily go through and read all these articles that I've read today, but rather that I could uh, help you understand more of the context while you're doing your daily activities, while you're driving, you have this on in the background, you're uh, following up on the links that you found interesting when you're ready to do so. But here, I just wanted to talk a little bit about, um, as we wrap up, the... Uh, book that I got, I was going to read some of this book, the record today, if I can find it, but I think we'll hold off because we're also going to probably go into this on Grand Theft World tomorrow, but it is uh, Bill Gates, Gil Bates, I was going to hold the book up and then I remembered, I have a a book cap how to avoid a climate disaster, the solutions we have and the breakthroughs we need. Um, I have some parts in here. I probably need to go out and get some more juicy parts picked out. Um, but in, in just this, the the sum, summary and premise we can read into the record today, just so it makes sense of why I even brought it up. All right. So first of all, I wanna read, um, yeah, this is interesting. 51 billion to zero. That's the introduction. I think chapter one starts out on the same kind of thing of how to get to zero. Um, here it is. Why zero chapter one, but this, this was interesting here. Um, here I plead guilty. I am aware. So he's, he's here talking about, I am aware that I am imperfect. My stream over there is cutting out and it's making me think that my uh audio is cutting out but i don't think it is i am aware that i am an imperfect messenger on climate change that the world is not exactly ready Uh, lacking the world is not exactly lacking in rich men with big ideas about what other people should do or who think technology can fix any problem and i owe big i own big houses and fly private jets In fact, I took one to Paris for the climate conferences, and so who am I to lecture anyone about the environment? I plead guilty to all three charges. I can't deny being a rich guy with an opinion. I do believe, though, that there is an informed opinion, and I am always trying to learn more. I am a technophile. Show me a problem, and I'll look for technology to fix it. And it comes to climate, when it comes to climate change, I know innovation isn't the only thing we need, but we cannot keep earth livable without it. Techno fixes are not sufficient, but they are necessary. I thought that was quite quite interesting. Um, There's another section I want to read today really quick, but let's see, because I had...
8: Let's just doing it live. Uh, technophile, according to the Merriam's
7: Webster.com dictionary, the word technophile came along soon after technophobe, which seems to need an antonym. So it's a, it's own synonyms include geek, gearhead, and propeller head for the character. In 1950 comic book, the war propeller, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that wasn't as interesting as what I thought I found.
8: But it must have been like... the.
7: yeah here it was narcissism through technophilia many forms of technology are seen as venerable because they are uh i'm gonna have to pull back over here. there are experiences uh the user experiences them as the embodiment of their own narcissism Technophiles enjoy using technology and focuses and focus on the egocentric benefits of technology rather than seeing the potential issues associated with using technology too frequently. The notion of the abdication or sorry of the addiction is often negatively associated with technophilia and describes technophiles who become too dependent on forms of technologies they possess. Several of these technologies are used as a way of expressing, Of personal narcissism. People who are considered technophilic enjoy using technology and focus on its ecocentric benefits. The idea of addiction is often associated negatively with technophilia and while targeting only those technophiles. Well, I also have another reason why Bill Gates might be interested in this technology. Let's go ahead and play that into the record while we're at it. While we're in overtime, let's go overtime.
9: You've invested $10
5: billion in vaccinations over the last two decades, and you figured out the return on investment for that, and it kind of stunned me. Can you walk us through the math?
10: Well, it's pretty impressive that when you take these vaccines, uh, get them to be very inexpensive by making big volume commitments, have that right relationship with the private sector, uh, Get the delivery system, so they're really getting the coverage out there. You literally save millions of lives. You know, we see a, a phenomenal track record. It's been a hundred billion overall that the world's put in. Our foundation uh, is a bit more than ten billion, uh, but we feel there's been over a twenty-to-one return. So if you just look at the economic benefits, uh, that's a pretty strong number compared to anything else. The human benefit uh, in millions of lives saved. So, you know, we're here with a pretty strong message that uh, although all these other issues are very important, let's not forget about the great success in global health and maintaining that commitment. I
5: think the numbers that you ran through were if you had put that money into an S&P 500 and reinvested the dividends, you'd come up with something like $17 billion, but you
10: think it's $200 billion. Here, yeah.
7: Here, yeah, yeah. So the meme on the screen, or the... Quote that Michael Tesserion put with a picture of Bill Gates says, It is vital that we instantly identify, and I'm reading it for the people in the audio only, starting over. It is vital that we instantly identify those among us infected with, quote, emotional plague, unquote. bent on exercising their perverted will, they obsessively seek to undermine all natural structures and institutions sanctified by time. These moral degenerates use their financial power to bring the world to ruins. They get their kicks seeing other people sad, suffering, and enslaved. And that's uh, Michael Tesserion's commentary over the top of a picture of Bill Gates. um, And me, you know, tying in his technophilia with his more or less uh, obsession for control and psychopathy. So going back to his book on why we need to get to zero. This is from chapter one in the going to get into the closure of the episode he says the reason we need to get to zero is simply green is simple greenhouse gases have trapped heat causing the average surface temperature of the earth to go up the more uh-oh
8: Hold on. Give me one sec, those uh, watching the replay here. Okay, I think we're good. Sorry about that.
7: have a little music thing that comes up. Well, let's not even read. We've done a lot of reading today. Bill Gates thinks we need to drop to zero. We need to reduce greenhouse gases or we're going to have global warming and we're going to have a problem with the planet. And, uh, you know, the seas are going to overrun everything and you're going to be, you know, covered and you're going to lose California and that technology and his technophilia can fix it we are going to get into this book more later tomorrow on grand theft world but now let's get back into how i wanted to wrap that up at the close of the show which is two wires and cables everywhere go over this recent Nature uh, publication that came out uh, called Antarctica Icebergs Reorganize Ocean Circulation During Pleistocene Glacials is basically going over the fact that it could cause cooling um, rather than uh, warming as uh, the icebergs melt or the polar ice caps melt. And that article came out as well as an article from... Uh, had on that that came
8: recently was
7: dig that in my notes. Yes I am. Let me go find that. From canal.ugr.es following up the article from Nature um that came out earlier and I saw this on the suspicious observer this morning and I thought it kind of tailed in nice with you know, Bill Gates has his book and his whole uh, thing and everything, but the the science seems to be saying that we're headed for a global cooling, and we'll just read the top of this article here. The melting of large icebergs is a key stage in the evolution of ice ages. This from uh, December or sorry, February nineteenth, twenty twenty one. A new study in which Anduliasin Earth Scientist Institute. IACT participated, has described for the first time a key stage in the beginning of the great glacialations in, and indicates that it can happen to our planet in the future. The findings were recently published in the scientific journal Nature. The study claims to have found a new connection that could explain the beginning of the ice ages on Earth. Antarctic icebergs could melt could hold the key to activation of a series of mechanisms that caused the Earth to suffer prolonged periods of global cooling, according to Francisco J. Jimenez Espejo, a researcher at the Andalusian Earth Science Institute, whose discoveries were recently published in this prestigious journal Nature. It had long been known that the changes in the Earth's orbit and as it moves around the sun triggered the beginning or an end of glacial periods by affecting the amount of solar, solar radiation that reaches the planet's surface however until now the question of how small variations in solar energy that can reach that reaches us can lead to dramatic shifts in planet's climate and has remained a mystery this new study a multinational group of researchers proposes that When the Earth's orbit around the sun is just right, the Antarctic icebergs begin to melt further and further away from the continent, moving huge volumes of fresh water from Antarctic oceans into the Atlantic. This process causes the Antarctic oceans to become increasingly salty, while Atlantic oceans become fresher, activating overall circulation patterns, drawing CO2 from the atmosphere and reducing the so-called greenhouse gas effect. There are initial stages that mark the beginning of an ice age on the planet. Within his study, the scientists used within this study, the scientists used several techniques to reconstruct oceanic conditions in the past, including by identifying tiny fragments of rock that had broken away from Antarctic icebergs as they melted into the oceans. These deposits were obtained from marine sediment cores removed from the International Ocean Discovery Program during the Expedition 361, off the sea margins of South Africa. So, again, the paper basically goes in to say that there's much evidence that shows that what we could be heading for is a global cooling, but Bill Gates in his new book is uh, you know, still on the definite fact that we're headed towards global warming, and that we have to drop carbon emissions. It doesn't seem to mention the sun very much. He does He does talk about it in here. I'm gonna need to flesh this out a little bit more tonight and tomorrow I'll go through and read the remaining parts of this book that I've not gone through and read yet and uh, have that ready for an expose either next week or tomorrow we can go into that. Um, and then next week, we're gonna continue down this path of the bio on TylerBloyer.com. And if we if we skip a week here or there or we get onto a different topic and need to cover something else, I still don't feel like this is wrapped at all and we need to continue to uncover the information that I've uncovered here. Apparently it was too spicy for the YouTube today. So next week don't, uh, I assume that I'll have some kind of strike. Um, so I, it may not be able to be on there for several more weeks. Um, I had it on my to-do list to create a backup channel for tylerblower.com on YouTube. Cause I don't have that much content and I have it all organized. I'll just start uploading it to another channel and that way I'll have a backup, you know, YouTube channel sitting there if I need it. And looking forward to learning how to stream on Odyssey and BitChute when they have that capability. It looks like Odyssey is getting pretty close as well. I'm currently also live streaming on Facebook, DLive, Float, um, Twitch, and you know, and not really doing this for the live stream audience. And so sorry if you've commented and I'm not interacted with you. I'm not really doing it live for that reason. It is somewhat for that reason. And maybe down the road when there's a larger, larger, like viewing audience, it might be worth actually, you know, taking questions or trying to read through chats or something. But for now it's to get it out, to have it laid down, to have my routine in a, a routine where I can have the, my, my flow keep going and not, not give up. Cause I have, a, I don't give up, but I have a potential to kind of get off onto other things. So if I keep a regular live streaming schedule, it kind of keeps me to it. And then I will have the MP3 out for download on all the di- different various platforms that I'm published on for this, uh, including uh, See here, I'll just read through the list on, one of my other posts, if I can find it here. You can find me on Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, TuneIn, Desert, obviously the RSS feed, watch the replay on BitChute Library. It is on LifeLog as well. And not on this one obviously will not be on YouTube. And uh, for there, I think I am going to try to close down this stream. I had a few more things that are going to get moved into next episode for viewing or perhaps another time. But uh, classical style, and since we have it prepped out here, we're going to go for a throwback to the 2018 documentary called The Darkest Winter. Sorry, it's uh, 2020, October of 28th of 2020, from The Conscious Resistance, uh, narrated by Derek Bros and I'm not sure who else from his team worked on that. And uh, again, as usual, I may may not uh, come back after the, end of the clip here and just let the show run out at that point. It's been great streaming with you guys today. I'm happy I was able to get the information out, probably fumbled through some things today. Not as many tech hiccups besides the, you know, getting kicked off the old uh, tube there. And other than that, I feel like it's been a good, nice episode and we'll continue on the Biosi war next time. Thanks.
2: Without better planning, 2020 could be the darkest winter in modern history.
6: Britain is braced for a dark winter as new measures are deployed to stem a surge
10: of coronavirus. New signs of a false surge and perhaps perhaps an even more painful winter as coronavirus cases soar in the US.
1: We're about to go into a dark winter. A dark winter.
3: This message is for anyone who has concerns about the upcoming U.S. elections, the potential for chaos and civil unrest, or those who fear what a second wave of COVID-19 could mean for the future of humanity. If you have found this message on your own, please share it with your friends and family. If someone you care about recommended this to you, please watch it and do so with an open mind. We are in the last few months of a tumultuous year and it appears that there might be more unprecedented events on the way. As we near election 2020, it's important to step back and analyze the potential plans of the predator class. Specifically, it's important to understand a number of recent government simulations and exercises. First, let's look at the exercise known as Event 201. One year ago, on October 18, 2019, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation partnered with the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and the World Economic Forum on a high-level pandemic exercise known as Event 201. Event 201 simulated how the world would respond to a fictional coronavirus pandemic known as CAPS, which swept around the planet. The simulation imagined 65 million people dying, mass lockdowns, quarantines, and censorship of alternative viewpoints under the guise of fighting disinformation, and even floated the idea of arresting people who question the pandemic narrative.
6: The outcome of the caps pandemic in Event 201 was catastrophic.
3: Coincidentally, one of the players involved with Event 201 was Dr. Michael Ryan, the head of the World Health Organization's team responsible for the international containment and treatment of COVID-19. Dr. Michael Ryan has called for looking into families to find potentially sick individuals and isolate them from their families. Due to the vast web of connections between Bill Gates and nearly every organization connected to the COVID-19 fight, a growing number of researchers are questioning the motivations of Gates and other officials involved in the Event 201 exercise. Crimson Contagion and Clade X. Another important exercise was known as Crimson Contagion and simulated an outbreak of a respiratory virus originating from China. From August 13 to August 16, 2019, Trump's Department of Health and Human Services, headed by Alex Azar, partnered with numerous national, state, and local organizations for the exercise. According to the results of the October 2019 draft report, the spread of the novel avian influenza named H7N9 Resulted in 110 million infected Americans, 7.7 million hospitalizations, and 586,000 deaths. Another simulation known as Clade X took place on May 2018. This event examined the response to a pandemic resulting from the release of a fictional virus known as Clade X. In the simulation, the virus was released by a terror group called A Brighter Dawn. As the outbreak spread through the United States, the participants asked what would be needed if the president issued a federal quarantine, noting that the authorities would need to, quote, determine the level of force authorized to maintain quarantine. The clade X exercise also resulted in the federal government nationalizing the healthcare system. The leaders of these controversial pandemic simulations that took place before the coronavirus crisis have long-standing connections to the U.S. Intelligence and U.S. Department of Defense. Even more troubling is that key players in the exercises, specifically Event 201 and Clade X, share a common history in another biowarfare simulation known as Dark Winter. The Darkest Winter. The Dark Winter exercise took place in June 2001, only months before the 9-11 attacks. This exercise took place at Andrews Air Force Base in Camp Springs, Maryland, and involved several congressmen, a former CIA director, a former FBI director, government insiders, and privileged members of the press. The exercise simulated the use of smallpox as a biological weapon against the American public. During the dark winter exercise, authorities attempted to stop the spread of dangerous misinformation and unverified cures, just like with the Event 201 simulation. Dark Winter further discusses the suppression and removal of civil liberties, such as the possibility of the President to invoke the Insurrection Act, which would allow the military to act as law enforcement upon request by a state governor, as well as the possibility of martial rule. The script says martial rule may, quote, include, but are not limited to, prohibition of free assembly, national travel ban, quarantine of certain areas, suspension of the writ of habeas corpus, and or military trials in the event that the court systems become dysfunctional. What is important to know is that Dark Winter was largely written and designed by Tara O'Toole and Thomas Inglesby of the Johns Hopkins Center, along with Randy Larson and Mark Demir of the Analytic Services Institute for Homeland Security. O'Toole, Inglesby, and Larson were directly involved in the response to the alleged anthrax attacks which took place in the days after September 11, 2001. These individuals personally briefed Vice President Cheney on Dark Winter. Coincidentally, Event 201 was co-hosted by the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, which is currently led by Dark Winter co-author Thomas Inglesby. Tara O'Toole was also a key player in the Clade X simulation. The name for the exercise comes from a statement made by Robert Cadleck, a veteran of the George W. Bush administration and a former lobbyist for military intelligence and intelligence contractors. In the script, Cadlick states that the lack of smallpox vaccines for the U.S. population means that it, quote, could be a very dark winter for America. Angie, it
0: means it could be a very dark winter for America.
3: Cadlick is now currently leading the HHS's COVID-19 response and was also involved in the Trump administration's 2019 Crimson Contagion exercises. Eerily, Cadlick's statements in the 2001 exercise were recently repeated nearly word for word by Richard Bright, former director of Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority. Bright was recently celebrated as a whistleblower who attempted to hold the Trump administration accountable during the COVID-19 battle. However, while speaking in front of Congress, Bright stated, Without better planning, 2020
2: could be the darkest winter in modern history.
3: Now, maybe Bright is simply a concerned scientist warning about the potential for more sick people, but his use of the phrase darkest winter is hard to ignore here. When hearing the statements from Cadlick and Bright, we ought to consider the corporate media's promotion of a potential second wave of COVID-19. Bill Gates and other influential pundits and health authorities have consistently warned about a second wave which was slated to arrive in the fall of 2020. As of mid-October 2020, reports are beginning to come in that cases are on the rise. This is what makes the statement from Richard Bright all the more concerning. This leads us to a number of recent simulations of the 2020 U.S. election which have resulted in chaos and potential civil war. It would be easy to dismiss these exercises as politically driven fantasy if the people involved had not already publicly advised their candidates not to concede the election under any circumstances. Most recently, media reports indicated the Transition Integrity Project held a number of exercises simulating what might happen in the event that Donald Trump loses the 2020 election but refuses to leave office. The TIP itself is a secretive group made up of never-Trump, neocon Republicans, and Democrats associated with the Obama administration and Hillary Clinton. The Boston Globe reported that the TIP met in June to simulate the 11-week period between Election Day on November 3rd and Inauguration Day on January 20th, 2021. The exercises state that, quote, Trump and his Republican allies used every apparatus of government, the Postal Service, state lawmakers, the Justice Department, federal agents, and the military to hold on to power, and Democrats took to the courts and the streets to try to stop it. The TIP envisioned one scenario where Trump wins and Biden refuses to concede and instead asks for a recount and makes several demands, including to give statehood to Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico and divide California into five states. In the exercises, Joe Biden is played by John Podesta, Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign manager and the chief of staff to former President Bill Clinton. The simulations essentially end in a constitutional crisis where there is no clear president and the Supreme Court, or possibly the military, Play a deciding role. This unprecedented event could be disastrous for American life as it is very likely that activists from both sides of the vote would take to the streets to protest what they believe is a theft by their opponents. And if you think protests and fights between extreme leftists and extreme right-wingers are contentious now, just wait until they both feel shafted during the presidential election. Those opposed to Trump will claim Biden won and Trump is attempting to steal the election and create a fascist dictatorship. The Trump supporters will say the satanic, radical, leftist Democrats are attempting a coup to establish a communist police state. The results will be neighbor turning against neighbor, family members disowning one another, and some political activists may escalate their tactics from protest to violence. Other groups were similarly engaged in war games that predicted complete chaos in the United States on election day, as well as the imposition of martial law. This includes the Operation Blackout simulations conducted by the U.S.-Israeli company, Cyber Reason. The company has considerable ties to the U.S. and Israeli intelligence community. Operation Blackout involved hackers taking control of city buses around the U.S., crashing into voters waiting in line at polling stations, hacked traffic lights causing accidents, and the release of deep fakes to manipulate the public. The simulation resulted in the cancellation of the 2020 election and the imposition of martial law. While Donald Trump continues to stoke the flames of division and uncertainty surrounding election 2020, the establishment is also preparing for the possibility of martial law in response to this chaos. Meanwhile, the public is being prepared for a second wave of COVID-19 infections which could lead to the foreshadowed darkest winter. While I don't care to install fear, I do encourage everyone to heed these warnings and be prepared for potential unrest in the days and weeks following the election. Are you prepared? In conclusion, I believe we may have a narrow window of time to inform our friends and family and motivate them to prepare for what may be on the horizon. We can spend our time attempting to convince them of the lies of COVID-19. We can also try to educate them about the numerous exercises predicting chaos and civil unrest across the United States. As important as education is in this information war, now might be the time to focus our energy on helping our families be prepared for what may come. Rather than attempting to convince them to see what you see or believe what you believe, perhaps we can simply help keep them safe until they can clearly see the writing on the wall. Again, if you are hearing of these exercises and topics for the first time, please listen with an open mind. I also want to emphasize that I don't say these words in hopes of inspiring fear or stress. In fact, I hope that this analysis can paint a clear enough picture of the grim reality that we are facing so that we may act. It is only by honestly facing our circumstances that we can hope to influence and change the path of humanity. This is a historic time to be alive and we have the opportunity to play a powerful role. It's time to shake off the shackles and expose those who seek to hold us back for their own sick purposes.